Are there going to be strippers? Take the money, kick her in the shins, and run away. I always thought this would happen. I just didn't want to bug you out. <laughs> I'm drunk. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that is no substitute for wit. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. I never should have let it get this far. I should have stopped it long ago. Well, I mean, we could get a divorce. No. But who would get to keep the podcasting equipment? (laughs) That's true. You, actually, probably. Well, I don't know. We didn't have a prenup. This is California. We might have to chop it in half. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. Wouldn't be much good for anybody, but that's California for you. Thanks a lot. Supreme Court Judge Solomon. (laughs) Political humor? (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, we have uh, no new countries to report this week. But we have broken our uh, download record yet again. Yet again, yeah. So we're uh, very happy with all of our cousins out there that they're interested in the show. Um, And welcome to some new cousins. Yeah, absolutely. New Uh, cousins, you can definitely feel free to contact us on Twitter. We're at 5MaggieSmiths. That's the number five. mm -hmm. We're on Facebook. You can just search for Up Yours Downstairs. And you can email us directly or send a telegram, as we generally call it. Mm -hmm. And our address is upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com. Yes. And this week, as always, we've received many such telegrams. Many, in fact, too many. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, up until this point, we've been able to read most, if not all, of the telegrams we receive. But the volume has really kicked up. Mm-hmm. So if you send us a telegram and you don't hear it on the air, we apologize. Yes. We just, you know, we only have so much time. We're still quite happy to get them, but uh, there's only so much we can do. And there's these episodes of Doubt Not Happy to recap, which are quite time-consuming. They're very long. Uh, but we do have some telegrams today. Our first telegram comes from Cousin Paul, who writes, Ahoy, ahoy, cousins. I'm a little behind on my podcast listening, so forgive me if you've already addressed this. In January 6th recap of Series 3, Episode 1, you mused as to whether the actress who plays Mackell's lady's maid, Reed, was British doing an American accent. I can confirm for you that she is, in fact, American. Kentuckian, to be exact. Her name is Lucy Sharp. And she attended Lexington's Lafayette High School, just up the road from my house, where a friend of mine is a math teacher. Said friend saw Lucy in a musical there a couple of years ago and intimated that she was very good. I figured with your Cincinnati roots, you might be interested to know that. In closing, let me say that I love up yours downstairs, having come to you via Boar's Gore and Swords, and eagerly await each week's new podcast. Luncheon, Cousin Paul. Well, thank you, Cousin Paul. Yeah. Uh, We also got the same information from Cousin Scott. Uh, who is also one of our Kentucky cousins, Mm -hmm. and he sent us a great link just kind of detailing how Lucy Sharp got to be in Downton Abbey. She actually studied at the Royal Scottish Academy of Dramatic Arts. So if you think about what would happen if you mixed a Kentucky accent with a Scottish accent... Yeah. I think it all holds up. That's yeah. how our little gypsy queen came to be. So <laughs> Yeah, makes sense. Thank you very much for uh, letting us know that. Mm-hmm. 
Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Marie, who writes, Cousins, while listening to your latest podcast during my morning commute to work, I know Cousin Violet would not approve of a girl with a job, but I digress. I could not help being excessively agitated over some of the discussion about Cousin Matthew and the question of his virtue before marriage. Have you met Matthew Crawley slash watched him for the past two seasons? Cousin Matthew was one of the most principled, self-righteous, usually in a good way, gentlemen on the planet. The man was going to exile himself to never marrying Cousin Mary because he thought he was responsible for Lavinia's death. He would basically rather die than take the inherited money from Reggie Swire. I find it hard to imagine that Cousin Matthew would even look at a girl while in service during the war, let alone allow the woman to be without clothes in his presence. Thus, I must disagree with your opinion and state emphatically that I believe he was a virgin when he first went to bed with Cousin Mary. Yours, Cousin Marie. Well, I mean, I think the show ultimately backs that up. I mean, I think it's clear that it is the position of the show, I think, that he that he was, you know, based on his post honeymoon comments yes um if nothing else absolutely i mean we were i think you know mainly just uh feeling skeptical that that was possible for any man however virtuous yeah we're you know we're fairly cynical people yes so (laughs) that's that's where we're coming from but uh you know i'm sure that he uh inexpertly well he didn't deflower mary or did he (laughs) or did he we still don't know i know Anyway, I do think it's great that she was, you know, kind of allowed to be the one with a bit of stain yeah. going into this, which yeah. is pretty rare. I mean, even on American television. Yeah, that's true. It's yeah. rare that, you know, women get forgiven these kinds of exploits. <laughs> Indeed. So. Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Andrew, who writes, Dear Kelly and Tom, I'm a longtime listener, but first time telegram sender. I wanted to write first to tell you that I greatly enjoy your podcast. My PhD is in modern British social and economic history, i.e. the Industrial Revolution to the present. So I especially appreciate Fashion Backwards and Tom Repeats History. Your commentary on Manor House was also excellent. One question I've long had regarding that time period was why children, such as Master Guy, were the only upstairs residents allowed free access to the downstairs. I asked my dissertation advisor, but even he wasn't sure. I'm also writing to recommend the 1979 Yorkshire television miniseries Flambards. It follows young orphan Christina from the time she goes to live with her uncle Russell and cousins Mark and William at their Flambards estate in 1901 through to the end of the First World War. Here she is expected to eventually marry Mark to keep the estate intact, but as you can imagine, not all turns out as planned. The story, which features action, romance, and class conflict, is especially appealing if you like horses, aeroplanes, and or cute British men. Yes, I am gay like Thomas, but no, I am not evil. But you don't have to in order to enjoy the show. Thanks for reading, and keep up the great work. Regards, Cousin Andrew. Well, I'm so glad he's not that evil gay cousin I've been oh. worried was going to crop up at some point. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, he's plotting something. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for the recommendation. That actually sounds fantastic. Yes. And exactly I, the sort of thing we would want to talk about on this podcast. It, it absolutely does. I will say I'm always concerned when I read that one of our cousins has some sort of bona fide expertise in the area. <laughs> <laughs> so and I, yet he has not criticized your historical leanings. So Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, so thank you internet i did think that we talked about why kids were allowed downstairs but i think it was just a matter of you know the parents couldn't be bothered with them i mean the parents didn't see them right it was inappropriate for the parents to see the kids yeah so you know the yeah. next I mean, logical I, solution is just let them run around downstairs yeah, so always, reggie raj singh didn't have to deal with them all the time <laughs> that's always what it had struck me as was just sort of a uh 
just sort of by default that that was how it evolved. Like, yeah. not that anybody planned it that way. Sort of a kids will be kids kind of thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, you know, they're, I think once they kind of, you know, started to come of age and be sent out, you know, sent away to school, that's when, mm-hmm. you know, they were no longer allowed to go down there. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Melvina. Hello, cousins. Before I forget, just a few random thoughts on the last podcast. Re Mac L and her greeting comment to Sybil, I thought we do it so much better in America referred to the new drugs given to women laboring in hospitals. Birth most often took place at home before this time, so hospital births with pain relieving drugs was just catching on in the States. Regarding Mac L's enigmatic advice to Edith, I immediately thought she's telling her to be one of the flapper girls, young girls who were fleeing off old conventions, smoking, drinking, carousing, and most certainly entertaining lots of boyfriends. <laughs> I think she was telling Edith to quit pining for a husband and sow her wild oats. In other words, she was telling her American girls are sluts. Did not like Mary's wedding dress. It looked like a business envelope with a sash, (laughs) and she was covered head to toe, but I concede that was very period appropriate. A future fashion backwards spotlight on wedding styles? Very interesting history on the railroads, Tom. Isn't Lord Grantham egregiously bad at making investments? He didn't even take his own broker's advice. He deserves all the humiliation he suffers. And I'm convinced McGee is snorting laudanum on the DL, because that's the only thing that would explain her hazy, dippy reaction to the bad money news. I would love for that to come out in a future episode. We need a drug addict up in here. As for the whole Shank Bates thing, you know what? Shank this whole storyline. I am (laughs) over it. It's dragging out so long and painfully. Enough already. I want Anna to have a mad affair with one of the servants and say, Bates who? One more thing. My theory about O'Brien and Thomas. I think Thomas is just a bitter, bitter person. Far more bitter than O'Brien because he has more to lose in life. His gay secret. And he is bitter to think of young Alfred getting any advantages because he sure didn't. Bitter. Well done, cousins. Ready for the next round. Cheers, Cousin Melvina. We did do a fashion backwards on wedding styles. It would have been more Edwardian focused, and I did yeah. actually try to look into it. And it's not. Yeah. It's not. I mean, I well, think I, the, the wedding rituals would have remained the same. Mm-hmm. The thing that would have changed simply would have been the fashion, right? Which right. we kind of already covered in terms of sort of. I guess we didn't talk about the drop waist yet, but we'll get there. We'll <laughs> yeah. get to the drop waist. Oh, all right. Yeah, certainly we agree about Bates, and I. That's a fine theory about Thomas, but I just, it still doesn't do enough for me to explain what's it's going on support- with them. I mean, that's fine, but it's never been made explicit, at least in terms of why that would suddenly push this wedge between the two of them. Yeah. Because he's always been bitter mm-hmm. and resentful. Yeah. But she was always right there with him. Yeah. So why now, all of a sudden? Yeah. It, it's, it just doesn't quite, it's not quite happening. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, we appreciate your efforts to justify the storyline. Yes. Thank you. Please. You know what? <laughs> Write to Baron Fellows. Yeah. He seems like he needs a new staff writer. <laughs> Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Dre, who writes, Dear Kelly and Tom, first, I'd like to say that I immensely enjoy your podcast. I've listened to the other Downton podcasts out there, and Up Yours Downstairs is by far the most interesting, humorous, and informative. I think it's wonderful that you see the show for what it is and don't feel the need to treat it seriously. I, like you guys, love Downton Abbey nearly as much as I love to make fun of it. 
I'm sending this telegram mostly to offer a suggestion. I think the Abbey Awards for each episode are great and would like to suggest the addition of a Worst Decision Award. Particularly throughout the third season, there are a lot of characters making a lot of awful decisions. I feel that this award would lead to really interesting discussions, so it would be awesome if you would consider adding it to the Abbeys. Feel free to change the name if you can think of something better. Thank you both for reading. Cousin Dre. I think that's a fantastic idea. I, I think so, too. And so, Cousin Dre, for our initial episode that will include the Abbey Award of Worst Decision, you have been awarded Cousin of the Week. Congratulations. Well done. Yes. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> Please do. Or don't. Or especially right. if you have asthma. <laughs> We're not trying to advocate smoking of anything. Yeah. I read this interesting article not too long ago about Downton Abbey and how, you know, sort of liberal Americans have embraced it, even though it's kind of this horrible, you know, picture mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. of these sort of noble servants taking on all of this, uh, you know, kind of abuse from their, you know, right. quote unquote it, superiors. Yeah. And you're kind of saying, you know, that these people are kind of relegating themselves to the position of Matthew and Isabel. In the sense that mm. they don't, you know, they have criticisms of the system, but they are happy to just kind of like wallow in the spoils without particularly feeling too guilty about it, mm-hmm. which I thought was a really interesting critique. Yeah. Well, it is. And I mean, I would also say that that just brings to mind that the whole Matthew arc so far this season that we hate or his character, I feel like it could be redeemed if we saw either in the acting or in the writing more self-hatred over that aspect of it Mm -hmm. how he's becoming this thing that he didn't that he resented and didn't want to be because there are sort of hints of that at times he was talking about wanting to get you know somewhere different after they got married and kind of establish themselves and and right give up this life yeah and that could have been a real that if that had been part of the conflict between him and mary Mm -hmm. all this time where it's i mean that's more fundamental that's about him saying it's I'm not just giving away because I don't want to benefit from this money, but as much because I'm relieved to not have to take up this position that I'm uncomfortable with. Well, and, the and then that- that's a real conflict that you know goes to the heart of both of them that they would have had to really fight over. True, and we can discuss it a little bit further when right. we get to the resolution of of that mini arc later in this episode. But I, you know, we all know with our privileged vantage point mm-hmm. being. In the future. Right. That this this system this just keeps happening. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just these these lords keep losing the money that it would require to continue this lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, they all do sort of give up the ghost. I mean there yeah. are still a few. Right. Uh, but, but not yeah. nearly as many as there were. Yeah, no, I mean they 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 should all wait for the fifties if they yeah. want to see some uh problems mm-hmm. with the great houses. Yeah. But well, anyway. We are not in the 50s. <laughs> we are still in 1920. God knows we may yet get there. <laughs> <laughs> we open on maids scurrying around in the Great Hall, carrying flowers and arranging glasses, and nary a bicycle in sight. <laughs> Edith is watching from uh, the stairs, seeing them roll up the carpet, and it's a pretty neat little aerial shot. Yeah. And uh, the Dowager Countess walks in, and Edith says that she's so excited, and... Uh, the Dowager Countess is being supported by Alfred and says at her age, she has to ration one's excitement. <laughs> yeah. In the parlor, uh, McGee is arranging the wedding gifts, and uh, the Dowager Countess says that she told Edith that everything would come out all right for her. 
uh, which he did. We remember. Yeah. In that very room. In <laughs> yes. fact. Edith smiles, or, or rather continues smiling. She's, she's so happy throughout these scenes and says that finally something happening at Downton is about her. And McGee smiles at her the way you smile at somebody when you weren't actually listening to them, but pretending that you were. <laughs> oh, you mean how you smile at me all the time? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um. I'm getting that podcasting equipment. <laughs> I'll see you in court. I don't even know how to use it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that hard. I'm just here for my looks. <laughs> yes. They discuss that the wedding dress has arrived that morning. The Dowager Countess is sad that she decided against Patu. That's Jean Patu, who we have discussed. We discussed him last week. Mm-hmm. The inventor of uh, knit swimwear and the tennis skirt. Yes. But McGee feels that Lucille, whoever that is... I'm assuming Lucille is their dressmaker in Ripon. That's what I'm assuming as well, yes. If Lucille was, like, a famous person, I feel very confident <laughs> that we already would have, like, heard about her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but Lucille is safer, as she does not want Edith to look like a chorus girl. Uh, so take that, Jean Patou. Woo! <laughs> I cannot... Yes. I'm Jean Petou. <laughs> I invented the, f- the tennis skirt and the French Open. That's just how I imagine he talks. That's fine. <laughs> um, Thanks for the support. That's that's what I'm here for. <laughs> uh, Edith says that Sir Anthony is so excited. Uh, his life is beginning again, which leads to the question how one tells when Sir Anthony is excited versus, you know, gassy. <laughs> his uh his bum hand gets a little twitchy <laughs> the feeling starts to return yeah downstairs o'brien is walking behind thomas and she says that she hopes that he has lord grantham's shirt ready for the evening and thomas tells her that he's hidden a few just in case she's interested oh. <laughs> uh, she plays dumb she's like why would i be interested and then thomas threatens alfred for no reason he's like that goes for you too ginger <laughs> and alfred He's either playing dumb or he actually is dumb. It's very, very hard to tell. <laughs> yes. Uh, he may have completely forgotten the events of last week's episode. Yeah. And I would recommend you save that sentence, Alfred is either playing dumb or is actually dumb, just so you can keep pasting it into future recaps. Thanks. I might. <laughs> I just might do that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's going to apply. Anna is talking to Mrs. Hughes, telling her that the flowers are ready and that she's kept back a few in bud. Uh, I suppose that she can refresh any arrangements. Yeah, she says on Saturday, which is the day of the wedding, mm-hmm. she will go through and, you know, pull out any flowers that have, I think she says turned over is the phrase she uses, but yeah, yeah. anything wilting, mm-hmm. like Sir Anthony's arm. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sadly, that cannot be replaced by a flower. <laughs> Anna says that she'll be back for the dinner gong, and Mrs. Hughes says that they'll manage. Will they? Uh, apparently. Seriously, these people work less than those kids on Saved by the Bell went to class. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Like, Anna never works anymore. No. Nope. She's still supposed to be ladies maid to two people and head housemaid. Yeah. They're still missing a housemaid. I think they're still missing a housemaid. Right. They've Meanwhile, got some running around, but they haven't replaced, you know, Ethel, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Uh, you know, certainly nobody's been introduced to us, the viewer. Yeah. Um, but no, she's just running around playing Anna Bates P.I. all mm-hmm. day long. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Patmore asks Mrs. Hughes in the hallway if Mrs. Hughes has heard anything from Dr. Clarkson. And Mrs. Hughes says that, of course, she would have told Mrs. Patmore if there was any news. 
they might have wanted to have this conversation in Mrs. Hughes's parlor. Possibly. Uh, because Carson's standing behind an open door, clearly eavesdropping. Yeah. Well, I also just wondered, has, has Mrs. Patmore been asking Mrs. Hughes that every day for the last month? Because I suspect she has. I do, too. <laughs> oh, man. Mrs. Hughes, patience of a saint. Yeah. In an upstairs hall, Thomas accosts Molesley, who drops a shirt because he's Molesley. Freaking Molesley. Yeah. Seriously. What is his damage? Yeah. And he asks Molesley if his friend's daughter is still looking for a place using his standard scheming voice, which mm-hmm. I would think everybody at Downton would be able to recognize by now, but no. Alfred's not the only dumb one. <laughs> yeah. He's merely the dumbest of the dumb. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Molesley says that, yes, she is, that supposedly there's a servant sort shortage that you read about in the papers, but she can't find a position as a lady's maid, and he's worried that she'll end up as a housemaid. <gasps> the horror! <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, look what happened to Ethel. <laughs> That's true. On the other hand, Gwen did all right for herself. Yeah, yeah. But anybody trained as a lady's maid has no interest in secretarial school. Well, and Anna's cleaning up the mean streets of London, so That's she's true. doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and Thomas tells Mosley that, oh, we can't have that, and who would like to tell him something that Miss O'Brien doesn't want known. And then he ominously gestures Mosley into a room. Like, what is it's in like that room? It's like the end of The Godfather Part 2. <laughs> it is. Like, it's just very, like, dun-dun-dun. It's where O'Brien keeps her collection of uh, pickled ears. <laughs> pickled bangs. <laughs> Pickled Bangs, the Sarah O'Brien story. <laughs> a Lifetime original movie. <sighs> Me mother had Pickled Bangs, <laughs> and her mother before her. And as God is my witness, Thomas, you'll not take my Pickled Bangs from me! I think I might. <laughs> Hello, I'm Alfred. <laughs> Shut up! This show has some tone problems. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be worse reviewed than Liz and Dick. In the library, the landed gentry are all, uh, you know, casting about on Shay's lounges. Yes. And McGee's asking Lord Grantham how they will advertise Downton when it comes time to sell. And he makes some, you know, comment about, oh, Earl's Mansion, uh, plenty of... Uh, Things uh, yeah. that could help the proletariat. I don't know. <laughs> You're right. But uh, Branson is there. For any- sale. My only love. <laughs> <laughs> Isis is not for sale. <laughs> You're right. You're right. So Branson is there and he asks where the family's going to go. Question. How did Branson and Sybil get the money to come over so soon? Excellent question. It was quite an issue the previous it time. It was really quite the issue. Now, not at Moreover, all an issue. he appears to have laid in a Downton wardrobe. Yes. Which he was adamantly opposed to before. But uh, he's like, well, I lost that battle once. I'll never fight it again. Mm. That's how Ireland will win its freedom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to his credit, he is reading a newspaper when he asks. So presumably he's keeping up with the black and tans. <laughs> Lord Grantham says they have some land in Airy home on the border of Durham. Yeah. And uh, the house came with his great-grandmother, who presumably, you know, she was an heiress who got that house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says maybe they'll rename it Downton Place, which might be the name of Series 4, <laughs> if we're lucky. Yeah. And the landed gentry goes down the way we hope it does. It's uh, worth dreaming about. But that sounds more like a, you know, 
I guess it's just because of Melrose Place. I'm like, that sounds like steamy with like lots of blondes and boobs everywhere. Let's do it. I'm ready. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I want to see Isis in a bikini. (laughs) I do not. She's blonde. (laughs) Well, you know, that's fine. Yeah. So they're moving to the border with Durham, which is the county north of Yorkshire. So it's basically getting farther and farther away. It's like moving from Ohio to Kentucky, basically. You know, Ohio is not exactly the center of culture, but Kentucky's a step back. Also, like Durham, known for coal mining. Huh. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's just further evidence of the fall in their fortunes. Good to know. Uh, Apparently, a tenant is currently living at the house, but Lord Grantham says that they will pay him off so that they can live there. Mm -hmm. And then McGee suggests that they all pack a picnic and take it there the next day to celebrate Edith's last day of freedom. Are there going to be strippers? (laughs) (laughs) My lord, I'd like to introduce you to Magic Michael. Uh, my question is, since when has Edith ever been free? That is an excellent question. She has always been fettered well, by being an Earl's daughter, it seems to me. There was that afternoon with the farmer, but that's that true. is about it. And that's been a while. It has been a while. It's been quite some years since she made out with old Gaptooth Joe. <laughs> anyway. But he still thinks about it every day. <laughs> He probably does. I know. If I kissed an Earl's daughter, even right now, I would probably think about it every day. I'd be like, wow, remember when I kissed that Earl's daughter? Yeah. And you'd be like, I know. I wish I'd been there. So if any of our cousins are want our Earl's daughters mm-hmm. and want to give Kelly a present, she'll never forget. <gasps> we'll send you our address. <laughs> so... Mary comes into the library and says that Mosley is in the hall and wants a word. And Matthew's all, um, <laughs> uh, but it turns out Mosley doesn't want to talk to you, you ungrateful twat. <laughs> yes. He's there to talk to McGee. Everyone's a little curious about this, but right. Mosley comes in and asks if his friend's daughter can replace Miss O'Brien when she leaves. Uh, everyone is very perturbed by this. Right. Most of all, McGee, but she does a pretty good job of covering her ignorance. She does. Uh, but then as soon as Mosley leaves, she just looks like, you know, somebody told her that, like, a puppy died. <laughs> right. Uh, more than a puppy. Yeah. Like, her puppy. Right. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I saw the scene and I was like, how has it happened that McGee is the best liar in this entire house? It's true. Upstairs or down? Because, yeah, it says, I thought you knew. And she says, of course I knew. And yeah. And, like... And, you know, it's just Mosley. So then everybody pretty much rags on O'Brien and is like, yeah, don't let the door hit you on the way out, you old bag. <laughs> Except for McGee, who's just like, what is happening? My entire world is falling apart. Right. And Lord Grantham wonders when they should tell the staff that they're leaving, because apparently now is the first time that they've discussed it. But Mary suggests that they not spoil Edith's day and tell the servants later. And then she gives Matthew this very plaintive look, and he just, like, glares at her. Yeah. Like, at what point did Matthew become a cross between Bates and Carlisle? Mm-hmm. Like, it's awful. The other thing I thought about this scene when I watched it uh, the first time was I was like, okay, so the first step in Thomas's plan is this, but since Miss O'Brien isn't actually going to quit, I can't wait to find out what the next part of this plan mm-hmm. is. And uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll see how that turns out. Down in the village, Dr. Clarkson is walking along, and Carson comes up to him and asks about uh, Mrs. Hughes' condition. He, sh- he says she knows that Mrs. Hughes has a condition and wonders how he can help. Dr. Clarkson says to lessen Mrs. Hughes' duties, 
and uh, also that he can't say anything else because he's a doctor. Yeah. Come on. Stop trying to violate doctor-patient confidentiality, Carson. Yeah. This shit might fly with the cheerful Charlies, but it doesn't fly with Dr. Clarkson. Yeah. Well, it doesn't. Well, he does because he says, uh, uh, I forget how he says it, but he does say like a little bit. He, he's like, uh, you know, there's, it's. He says that uh, he doesn't have anything, like he hasn't gotten the test results back or something. Yeah. He's like, I couldn't tell you that even if I knew, which I didn't. And then he stops and looks. He's like, I've, I've said too much. <laughs> Back in Matthew and Mary's room, uh, Matthew says he's had a call from Reggie Swire's lawyer, Chalkum. The Indian death certificate for Mr. Pillbox, or whatever the hell his name was, has arrived. And Matthew told Charkum to come the following day with it since there's nothing going on. Mary angrily reminds him that they have to take a picnic to Airy Home to see the house they have to move into. And she's surprised that he, of all people, can forget that. Matthew sighs and said he won't put off seeing this lawyer. And then Mary correctly identifies this as the moment where he refuses to invest his fortune in Downton. And he asks if she'll decide where to, you know, what charity to give it to. Mm -hmm. And she says she can't do that because she just wants to give it to her dad. And then he says he wishes that she could understand. She says that she's trying and she storms out. Yeah. Which, like, good on you, Mary. Also, that dress she wears in this scene. She's worn it several times. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite dresses. It's it's very nice. Matthew, meanwhile, looks like a frog throughout. (laughs) And this is where I I, I do again kind of feel like there's a vendetta against Dan Stevens. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just like seeing – because he's crouched down in this – like slumped down in this chair. Yeah, well, and his – like his shirt front is is all like – Puffed out. Yeah. Yeah. And I just imagine – the director being like listen dan crouch down more you know we need you to look jowlier jowlier in this scene can we get some shadows on his neck please <laughs> Here, brendan 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 Coyle. <laughs> he's not in today well call him in i want him to see his face <laughs> uh in mcg's dressing room o- o'brien is dressing mcg and asks if she needs anything else do you also love this dress of mcg's yeah yeah um, and McGee says that she doesn't, but asks if O'Brien has anything to tell her. O'Brien says that she doesn't know what, what McGee means, and McGee says that she won't prompt her if she's not ready to say. And then O'Brien just leaves. Yeah, just leaves. Without even, like, asking, like, what, what yeah. have you heard? Yeah, she's just like, huh, well, I assume that's nothing to worry about. I mean, Lord Grantham does come in is what prompts her to leave, but still, like, just not at all, just a, I don't know what, just a... Yeah. Just say you don't know. Like, does she have a secret? O'Brien's got a secret. (laughs) Lord Grantham asks if O'Brien has explained her reasons for leaving. And McGee says that uh, perhaps she doesn't want to say if her plans aren't settled. But she has let me down. And it's just that's a very classic McGee pout. It's Mm -hmm. like old school. Yeah, it's like season one up in here. Yeah. Lord Grantham says that they should go because Antony is never late, more's the pity. Punctuality is a virtue. It's one of my favorite qualities in a person. <laughs> yeah. I hate to be kept waiting. Yeah. Why is everybody so down on this guy? First of all, right now, I would far rather marry him than Matthew. Yeah. For one thing, he's got more money than you do at this point. He sure does. Edith is marrying up in the world. Mm-hmm. You twat. <laughs> Series three on Downton Abbey, Year of the Twat. It, I'm trying to vary my epithets, but that one just keeps being so accurate. And it's fun to say. <laughs> yes, it's true. It would, be, it would sound much better if we were British because we could say twat. <laughs> yes, that's true. Sadly, we're not. We're not. McGee, much more tactfully, makes this case. 
saying, <laughs> saying that. <laughs> well, it's not generally advisable to call your spouse a twat. True. At least back then. Yeah. We do it all the time. Well, yes, but we're, you know, we're very uh, progressive. We are. It's just saying that Edith will still be in the county, and that uh, Loxley, which is the name of <gasps> Sir Anthony's state. And Robin Hood. Yes. Uh, so is he a descendant of Robin Hood then? Is that what we're supposed to assume? Well, he is not a very good archer with that bum <laughs> arm. I'll tell you that right now. That's true. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. <laughs> Uh, but it's it's a lovely house, and the estate will give her lots to do. Lord Grantham just grumps that she'll be a nurse, and that by the time she's 50, she'll be wheeling around an old man. Riddle me this. Are these people not wealthy members of the landed gentry? <laughs> right. If they need a nurse, do they not then hire a nurse? I would think so. Does Sir Anthony not have a valet? I would presume that he does. I just don't understand why everybody is acting like Edith is going to have to do all of this, like, manual labor. Right. He's not bedridden. No. Yeah. Well, and and moreover... And she said in the prior episodes that, like, he gets around so well that he won't even let her do anything for him. Yeah. And, and guess what? If by the time Edith is 50, she's going to be wheeling around one old man or another. Because it's going to be Lord Grantham if yeah. it's not Sir Anthony. Oh, my God. Uh. I just don't know why they're acting like she has all these options. Right. She clearly does not have any options. Right. That has been true the entire series. Edith, (laughs) no options. Yeah. Nowhere to go, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Unless that Canadian guy is coming back. I know. She blew her wad on that church tour with Matthew. (laughs) Anyway, it's just very frustrating. Yeah. To just hear this getting harped on. Like, it would be one thing if anybody had a different reason. Yeah. And it, I mean, and it would be something if he if he was like seventy five or yeah. something. Like if he was ridiculous. But he seems like he's like late forties, maybe early fifties to me. Yeah, I'd say probably early fifties, just because he looked older in the previous series. Well, and I guess, but by the time Edith, like Edith's probably what like twenty five now. Probably about that ish. In that range, I feel like we really need to make like a flashcard. Yeah. To remember how old these people are. And I think it's more than Baron Fellows ever did. <laughs> Back in the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore is asking if Alfred is waiting until the family come downstairs in search of the pudding. It's not important to the scene. It's just they were like, shit, we need Alfred screwing up something in this episode. So So he forgot to take up the pudding. Uh, But then Mrs. Patmore sees Carson kind of puttering around outside the kitchen door and then goes over and is like, "Uh, can I help you? And he's like, oh, uh, but uh, I'm going upstairs. But real quick, uh, I saw Dr. Clarkson. And he said Mrs. Hughes might have cancer. And then Mrs. Patmore, like, totally spills all the beans. Actually, he doesn't say that. Right, right. He, but- he just, he plays this little game where he hints around that he knows something's wrong with Mrs. Hughes. And he says, oh, so it's cancer. And Mrs. Patmore's like, not till it's confirmed. Right. And then, you know, she's like, Dr. Clarkson told you? And he's like, no, Mrs. Patmore. You just did. Which is like a Batman thing to say. It is. He's been spending way too much time in the Carson cave. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He's been huffing that silver polish. Yeah. Well, then Mrs. Patmore looks all guilty, but that's on Carson. Yeah. Come on. Come on. Don't feel bad. Uh, up in the uh, dining room or library, I forget. It's the dining room. Yeah, up in the dining room. The ladies have already gone through. Okay. Up in the dining room, Anthony starts talking politics with Branson. Gee, because that's gone so well in the past. <laughs> right. Lord Grantham calls him our tame revolutionary. Everyone, family should have one. And Matthew's like, 
provided you are tame in a voice of bizarre hatred. And I'm like, well, aren't you friends? Yeah. And are you tame, Matthew? Are you tame? <laughs> um, but Branson, uh, yeah. And then one line later, Branson's like, uh, you want to play billiards? And, and Matthew's like, oh yeah, all right. Do, 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 do. <laughs> <laughs> hey, remember how I just insulted you? <laughs> I'm drunk. Yeah. So uh, Branson continues to be very diplomatic and... Uh, also wearing, uh, you know, tails and such. Yeah. So despite the questions about his politics and motivation, he's generally a welcome presence. Mm-hmm. And Matthew asks Lord Grantham to tell the ladies where they've gone. Uh, and they head out. Uh, Lord Grantham tells Antony that they're getting used to Branson. They all keep calling him Tom, and I just can't. <laughs> oh, the, yeah, no, that's he'll true. he'll always be Branson to me. Yeah. No, that's true. We can't handle that. He We're can not... dump a terrine <laughs> filled with all kinds of peen <laughs> on a diplomat's head as he dines with the queen. It's not bad. Thanks. Um, yeah, we can't handle this social upheaval. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll just keep calling him Branson. Um, also, your name is Tom? Yeah, that's we true. We can only have one Tom on this podcast. Yeah. No, and that's, you're it. That's, that's right. I've, I called it. And, uh, Anthony says that he hasn't had a chance to talk to Lord Grantham since everything was settled. Really? It's been a month. Uh, yeah. But he says, well, he, he sort of specifies, like, really talk, mm-hmm. i.e. one-on-one. Um, and he says that, you know, he, he understands why Lord Grantham was against it, but he hopes that you, oh, and by the way, pours his own drink with his bum arm. I mean, not with his bum arm, but despite his bum arm. Uh-huh. Uh, and and says that he, he asked Lord Grantham, he's like, are you happy? And Lord Grantham says, I'm happy that Edith is happy. I'm happy that you will do your best to make her happy. That's quite enough happiness to go around. And <sighs> there was a non-dickish way to say that. Mm-hmm. To say that exact thing. But Lord Grantham did not choose that. All he oh, had yeah. to say was, if Edith is happy, that's all I ask. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. Or just, you know, I'm not going to lie. I wish you were a little younger, but if she's happy. Right. You know? Yeah. Mazel tov, man. Right, right. <sighs> Downstairs, rather late at night, Mrs. Hughes is off to go get more ingredients for like a last minute wedding menu change, which yeah. be dick move, McGee. <laughs> Uh, Carson says that he doesn't want her to get too tired, and she just stops dead on the stairs and asks who he's been speaking to. And he's like, oh, but, uh, but I haven't spoken to anyone. I have laryngitis. <laughs> and she's like, oh, I'm leaving now. <laughs> Everyone in this house is such a terrible liar. It's true. None of them have any sort of, like, <laughs> poker face whatsoever. Yeah. Like, Thomas does, but his schemes are so bad yeah. that even the best poker face cannot you yeah. know, salve that. Well, and you'd think servants would develop excellent poker faces. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, upstairs too. McGee has shown her ability. Mm-hmm. You'd, you'd think you'd think they'd all be able. Once again, just shocked that yeah. she is now my hero. <laughs> Often the whore institute. <laughs> uh, Isabel is teaching the prostitutes from Central Casting how to sew. Yeah, these ladies, seriously. These ladies look like everybody went around to, like, every community theater production <laughs> of Les Miserables and just were like, you hired. Yeah. I mean, it is... That, that and Oliver. They are the most stereotypical prostitutes you've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, she she's telling them that this stitch is ve- very useful in a drama, which... Like, I don't, when some dude's trying to rip your bodice? 
I guess. Like, I can't think. I, the only thing I th- could think of is that maybe she was trying to train them to sew costumes for the theater. Right. Because people in those days did view, you know, actresses as being barely better than prostitutes true, anyway. True, true. But I still don't understand why a stitch would be more useful in a drama versus a comedy. That's a good point. I thought she meant drama in general, like, as in the theater. Oh, okay, okay. That yeah, makes not- sense. I was thinking of it as a, <laughs> as, as a genre, you know. There's- I was a drama student, so uh, I did not make this mistake. There are two separate theater masks, Kelly, and only one <laughs> of them is for drama. Only one of you is for drama. Yeah, that's true. Gosh. In any case, uh, one of the prostitutes asks when they might get Summit to eat, which is a fair question. It's the same prostitute from before. <laughs> yeah. The one who was stuffing her pie hole. And Isabel <laughs> was like, quit eating. I'm trying to help you. Yeah. I mean, I will say, I'm pretty sure they were probably pitched on the uh, the food angle. That's pretty much what <laughs> all, like, you know, personal focus, uh, charitable yeah. efforts are pitched around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Ethel walks back in. I just got this image of Isabel, like, leaving, like, this trail of breadcrumbs <laughs> behind her. I'm like, here, prostitutes! Here, prostitutes! Ooh, 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 ooh. Come on, prostitutes! Come on into my lair! I'm going to teach you to be a human being! Yeah. Um, yes, but Ethel walks in, and uh, Isabel is, is hoping that she has come for help, and Ethel says that she's past help. And Isabel says, well, if if you mean that you're a prostitute, that can be said of every woman in this room. Even I have served a discreet clientele. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, she's a regular Heidi Fleiss. Yes. Um, and uh, the prostitutes are highly amused by this whole thing. Cynical streetwalkers that they are yeah they're kind of like mrs patmore that everything they say is just like this stream of cruel laughter (laughs) but it's more like (laughs) they're kind of like the penguin (laughs) they are um come on dearie why all the fuss (laughs) you're no grander than the rest of us right life has dropped you at the bottom of the ape join your sisters sew costumes in your sleep (laughs) yes yes we all saw Les Mis over Christmas break. I especially did. I know. <laughs> Ethel says that she doesn't want the help for herself and then uh, just runs off again. And this is this is a classic Baron Fellows. He's mm-hmm. like, uh, I, why don't I don't feel like right? Why don't we just keep this same scene in the first three episodes mm-hmm. and then that'll that'll build up the suspense? It's like, no, you have to advance the plot in some way. Look. Clearly she's dying. Clearly she wants somebody to take care of her kid. Calling it now. That's what's up. All right. That's what's happening. She's dying. Her son needs a home. Is it? Is it a son? Perhaps Edith could become betrothed to him. <laughs> <laughs> but then she would be the one who was too old. <laughs> That's true. In the library, Matthew has received a letter from beyond the grave. Yes. Reggie Swire left letters for each of his three heirs. And, of course, Matthew Matthew is the only one who is alive enough to read his. (laughs) Alive enough. (laughs) So, Mr. Chalkham leaves, and he says, oh, there's going to be papers to sign. And I'm like, why didn't he just bring the papers? Yeah. Or, alternatively, why didn't you just mail that letter? Why did you have to hand deliver that? That's odd to me. (sighs) Look. Yeah. Reggie Swire was clearly an eccentric billionaire. <laughs> That's true. Do not question his methods. Good point. 
Sir Anthony is bringing them to Airy home so they can all face the future together. And Matthew says that it's hard for the Dowager Countess to be losing their home. And then Mary snipes back, and not not inappropriately so, that it's yeah. torture for all of them. And if he thinks that she's finding this whole thing easy, it's merely because she's putting on a good front. Yeah. I hope she's at least withholding sex at this point. At this point, well, I mean, as we recall, I, listen, she was very reluctant. She wasn't, she wasn't before, mm-hmm. but... Cousins, I just want you to know that in contemporary society, I very rarely advocate withholding of sex in order to get what one wants. I think it's cheap. I think it's childish. Mm -hmm. But in this case, where she can't even vote, much less have a say in what happens to them, really hope she's keeping the vajayjay under wraps. Yeah. She should be be like, listen, the only place I will ever have sex my entire life is is Downton Downton Abbey. Abbey. Oh, (laughs) boom. Yeah. Oh, I wish she'd said that. Yeah. That would have been... Much more fun. Outside the front door, some cars are lined up, and Carson is instructing Alfred on the finer points of an Earl's picnic. These people have a very different view of what a picnic entails <laughs> yes. than I do. Yeah. Because, like, mine is like, let's go to a public park. And our friend Sam, Sam Roth, <laughs> yes. a frequent guest on Up Yours Downstairs, <laughs> will make hamburgers, except they really look like meatballs. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll throw a frisbee get, around. And we'll all get hammered. <laughs> well, they are having champagne. Oh, uh, that's true. But still, like, they have, like, tables and chairs and stuff. Uh, right. We just, like, sit on a blanket until somebody spills too much stuff on it. Yeah, as long as somebody remembers to bring a blanket. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And Carson and Alfred, uh, or Carson at least, speculates as to why they're visiting this house, and they, you know, they have no idea because uh, nobody needs to tell the servants again, what's going neither on. Neither does Edith, as far as we know. Well, no, Did, I think. But you know, they were all talking about it in the library, and Branson knew. Okay, so Edith yes. must know Edith at this point, know. despite yes. the fact that she's never been present for a single conversation what, about what it. What was her reaction? We'll never know. Might be interesting. Mm-hmm. We'll never know. Um, uh, everyone comes out the front door and starts piling into the cars, and uh, Carson stops McGee, and she's very, you know, short with him, as, you know, understandably so, but he wants to know if uh, she can divert some of Mrs. Hughes' work his way, and McGee gets it out of him. Uh, well, he says because she's very tired, and McGee's like, tired? What do you mean tired? Well, it's more like, tired? What do you mean tired? Yeah. And um, ten minutes have passed. <laughs> yes. Lord Grantham says Cora, and she just puts up her hand, mm-hmm. which is awesome. I wish I wish much more of the series consisted of her like push, putting Talk down. Talk to the hand. <laughs> yes. At luncheon. Yeah, she should always be slapping Lord Grantham down. In any case, uh, Carson says that she's ill and maybe very ill, and McGee is by this news worried. How will they manage without O'Brien and now Mrs. Hughes? And Carson's like O'Brien. And McGee says that, well, Mosley told us, and then Lord Grandpa's is like, Cora, for the love of God, what I don't know what yeah. he says. And she's like, oh, okay, I'll go. Like, you couldn't take five seconds just to finish that sentence? Nope. Baron huh? Fellows willed it so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who cares what Lord Grantham thinks about this situation? <laughs> he lost all your money. He did. What, what exactly is it that he does? <laughs> <laughs> Makes everyone sad? Yeah. Um, in any case, that Hates is... his children. <laughs> Barely tolerates his own mother. <laughs> so, 
cut to Anna Bates PI walking into a menacing looking alley. It's which the is, alley of doom. Well, it's menacing only by virtue of the fact that you like hear a baby crying only like there's no one around. Yeah. It's very unclear. Yeah. It's deserted except for laundry flapping in the yeah. wind and it's it's lit very gray mm-hmm. because it's it's sad so she finds this woman taking down her wash and she addresses her as mrs bartlett so we're like oh this must be the mrs bartlett who was vera bates's friend yes so anna says she's brought some money and mrs bartlett takes it and tells anna that she has nothing to say so it was a waste of her time and money and then anna says that she just wants to know if vera and then Mrs. Bartlett gets all, oh, you were on Christian night times, Waggy. I'm pretty sure she's that woman who sold those curtains to old Joe <laughs> at the end of A Christmas Carol. <laughs> anyway, so Anna corrects herself. And, like, Anna is so funny in this scene because she's just, like, rolling her eyes like, oh, my God. Yeah. I literally don't have time for this. <laughs> yeah. But she's like, oh, was Mrs. Bates depressed or unhappy? And Mrs. Bartlett says that, of course she was, because her husband had left her and gone off with a trollop. And Anna's like, what trollop? Oh. <laughs> I never thought of myself as a trollop before. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Mrs. Screw you, Bates. I'm off to America. <laughs> there are no Bates in America, <laughs> and the streets are paved with garters. <laughs> Memo to our un-American listeners. The streets are not, in fact, paved with garters. And <laughs> yeah. even if they were, what would you do with yeah. them? Please do your research before moving here. So Mrs. Bartlett then says that Bates had changed and that Vera was terrified of him by the end. And then Anna wants to know when Mrs. Bartlett last saw her. Uh, suddenly, two mysterious, heavy-set eavesdropping washerwomen have appeared. Yeah, well, anytime anybody starts talking about a third party in that alley, washerwomen just materialize. <laughs> they're, uh, they're, re- they're relatives of Reed. <laughs> yes. They're gypsy washerwomen. <laughs> uh, so then Mrs. Bartlett says that they better go inside. And I think that she certainly has a lot to say for someone who initially said she had nothing to say. Yeah. Like, you know what? You were well out of this situation, Mrs. Bartlett. Like, take the money, kick her in the shins, and run away. Yeah. She doesn't know where you live. <laughs> in murder prison. <laughs> out in the prison yard, uh, all the prisoners are walking slowly in a circle. Just like this storyline. <laughs> it's true. They're all presumably thinking to themselves, boy, walking silently in a circle sure does make me feel like contributing to society. Question. Yes. As you mentioned, they're all walking in a circle. Yes. Including Bates. Right. Who doesn't have his cane. True. Who... I believe I believe he had a very severe limp once upon a time. Yeah, he most certainly did. Remember, he bought that whole, like, torture contraption? Yeah. I put it on his leg. I believe the entire first season was pretty much the story of Bates' limp. And it's like, oh, what? All it took was going to prison to cure it? Yeah. Like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Somebody call Dr. Oz. (laughs) Prison medicine, man. Unfairly (laughs) maligned. Uh, Some guy who, fortunately, is standing behind Bates in the circle tells him to watch out and to search his room because Craig or some of Craig's mates or whatever are trying to set him up. And the guard says, no talking. And... The guy's silent for a second, then he says, just do it. Worst Nike ad ever. (laughs) Speaking of things that are the worst, (laughs) I'm just kidding. It's time for one of our recurring segments with our resident penal pedant, Tom Schneider. It's Tom Repeats History. 
Hello. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you. Uh, today, I will be discussing prisons. Hooray! And the, the history and development thereof. Okay. So prisons, for you know centuries of recorded history, they weren't really used as punishment. They were used for, well, they were used for punishment for debtors. Debtors' prison was a common thing. Uh, but otherwise, criminals, they would be held in prison just up until their trial, after which they would be either hanged or set free, mm-hmm. essentially. Or, you know, there were, were other punishments like branding or being put in the pillory or whatever. But in all cases, once you got your sentence, it was carried out and then you were either dead or free to go. Mm-hmm. One early... Uh, sort of prison and, and start to change to this was Bridewell back in 1553. It was a house of correction. Uh, and it was basically uh, a poor house. It was to instill a sense of industry in the vagrant poor. Uh, apparently the theory was that the vagrant poor were only poor because they'd just never given working hard a try. <laughs> so, oh yeah. So that that was a, a new development. So they would be, you know, if you were poor and not working, they would be like, well, we'll find work for you in Bridewell. Uh, so that became a yeah, pretty... Yeah, the name definitely sounds familiar. Well, it became a, a general term for uh-huh. houses of correction. Okay. And it's, yeah, it's it's pretty, pretty well known. Really the first person to kind of uh, propose incarceration as a criminal punishment was actually Thomas More in Utopia, it's mentioned. That was back in 1615. As... Uh Big fans of the film Ever After will recall, in fact. Oh, wow. Well, she quotes it and says, uh, if I can remember the quote, uh, if you, sire, suffer your people to be ill-educated and something from infancy, then can't you say that you first create thieves and then punish them? Mm. Which I assume was linked to that idea. Yeah. I apologize to my fellow Drew Barrymore fanatics for butchering that quote. Yeah. And also... Also, not really doing your classic Drew Barrymore and Ever After voice. Oh, we'll have to- no! <laughs> if you, sire, suffer your people to be ill-educated, yes. you get the idea. Yeah. It's kind of McGee prequel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it really is, yeah. Um, so as we got into the 1700s, the death penalty started to become less popular as being for essentially all crimes. And it, it got to the point where it became counterproductive because juries just wouldn't convict people for small crimes because they didn't feel that, even if they thought they were guilty, they didn't think they deserved to be hanged. So the the first solution was transportation, which actually started out was transportation to America. Uh, about 50,000 criminals were transported to America. This also happens in Ever After. <laughs> That's... Listen, you can listen to this segment or you can just go watch Ever After. It's got Do Gray Scott. I, I will be moving past the Ever After era of history at some point. <laughs> Tom, we all know there is no post-Ever After era of history. It is the Alpha and Omega. <laughs> it has Leonardo da Vinci. I, that's Of the code. I'm not here to speak against Ever After, Kelly. But yeah, uh, after 1776, transportation to America became uh, less viable. <laughs> so, so that was when Australia became the standard destination for criminals. Incarceration also started out at this point, uh, partly just because there was a backlog of, of prisoners to get transported. And actually, the first prisons were uh, what were called prison hulks, which were sort of obsolete ships that would be dismasted and anchored in the Thames, and all the prisoners would just sort of be crammed onto these hulks, and it was, you know, god-awful. Did the hulk smash? Uh, not 
Not that I found a record of. No. <laughs> I'm trying to make a Bruce Banner joke, but it's just not happening. <laughs> okay. <laughs> These things do happen. Um, prison reform is generally credited as really getting kicked off by John Howard. Uh, he was the high sheriff of Bedfordshire. And in 1777, he put out some very influential, uh, just, he used his position to investigate what prisons were actually like, like, and put out a big report on it. And that, that was very influential. And, and the Howard Society, I think it's the Society, the Howard Something is still one of the leading prison reform advocacy organizations, uh, in the world. Uh, another famous name on the list was Jeremy Bentham, who in 1791 proposed the Panopticon. Uh, and his idea was that there would you could set up a prison to where the guards could see the prisoners, all the prisoners at all times, but the prisoners would never know when they were being watched. And the idea was that, first of all, you could reduce staffing because as long as they could be watched any time, you didn't need to be watching them all the time because they would always be under that threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was also uh, just generally this – ideas at this time were about getting prisoners to be alone and silent and reflect on their their crimes and and whatnot. Elizabeth Fry in 1817, she was a Quaker and she uh, was a very big prison reform, particularly for women prisoners and their children who were in prison with them. Uh, She started school. Like Bain. Yeah, like Bain. (laughs) In fact, She started schools for children in prisons and just generally advocated for better treatment of female prisoners. And she, uh, as of 2002, was on the five-pound note in Britain. Oh, wow. Yeah. Boy, they would never put a prison reform on money in America. <laughs> no. That, if that ever happens, I will eat my hat. Yeah. Uh, the other, uh, the next sort of big development that was very influential for uh, really a century, uh, in 1829, the Eastern State penitentiary uh, in philadelphia actually uh, and this was the start of the separate system and this was really the the panopticon never really got developed as bentham designed it and he became very bitter about it and felt that there was a conspiracy but uh, in any case <laughs> gee a guy who invented a penal system where you maybe are being watched all the time yeah came up with a conspiracy theory it's true and it's funny because I had heard about Jeremy Bentham and Panopticon just as a generally well-read and trivia thing all the time. And it turns out that nobody ever really actually listened to him or acted on any of his beliefs. All kinds of prisons will be listed as being inspired by the Panopticon, but none of them actually were. Uh-huh. They were all inspired by the Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. And that was not the Panopticon, but the separate system. And that was really focused on extreme isolation. All prisoners were, you know, in solitary. They were silent at all times. So it was like a monastery. It was. It was indirectly inspired by a monastery. Yeah. And uh, so the prisoners, again, would reflect on their sins. There's also a monastery in Ever After. (laughs) I don't doubt it. You've seen it. (laughs) Yes. Why do you hate me? (laughs) I don't hate you. I just did not have any Ever After material prepared for this segment on the history of prisons. I'm sorry. I will I will prepare Ever After material for all future Tom Repeats history See segments. See that you do. <laughs> Pentonville Prison in England was the uh, sort of first uh, exemplar of this system in England that would open in 1842. There, prisoners uh, did they were allowed into the exercise yards but they had to wear masks when they were out there like Hannibal Lecter uh, yeah 
exactly like that and face the wall at all times. They were completely reduced to numbers. The guards did not know any of the prisoners' names. Um, and it was just this very, like, weird and totalitarian thing. They were put at labor. There was a, uh, it was called a treadmill, which was either, it would either be like a, uh, uh, you would either tread on it with your feet or sometimes it was a hand-turned crank. Uh, and all it would do was just lift sand in an adjacent room and for no purpose. It didn't have any reason to it. Uh, you know, I'm not going to complain the next time I go to the gym. <laughs> yeah. Prisoners would have to do 10,000 rotations a day to earn their food for the day. Mm-hmm. And they didn't even make them do anything useful? That's right. That is such a waste. Yeah. And, uh, and the wardens could turn screws outside of the cells to increase or decrease the resistance of it, which is why screws is a common term in Britain for prison wardens, or at least has been at, mm-hmm. at points in history. I don't know if it still is. And uh, the separate system, I, I was concerned for a while at first because base obviously has a roommate, but it seems that the separate system, at least for much of its history, was you would be in solitary for a long period when you first got there, something like three months or something like that. Uh, but then after that, you would start to have more uh, socialization, but still silence was pretty much the rule most most of the time, most places. As in no talking! Yeah. Um, uh Things started to get better at this point. Uh, in 1877, they centralized prison administration uh, and, and made sure that everybody was following standards. In 1898, a big act was passed that reasserted that reformation was the goal as opposed to punishment or anything else. It abolished hard labor. It said that there could still be labor, but it had to be you know productive labor that could potentially be useful for you outside of uh, once you were back <clears throat> back in society. Uh, and one of the factors for, for that actually was Oscar Wilde's imprisonment mm. because he was imprisoned under the old system and it, <clears throat> you know, it killed him. And everybody was like, whoa, that really seems a little harsh for, you know. Just uh, sticking it to, you know, that guy. Yeah. So uh, that that was a factor. And then uh, the the big real change that got it sort of up to modern standards was actually in late 1921. You'll note this is after the period where here in Downton Abbey. Uh, among the changes in that time were that close-cropped hair was abolished. Uh, before then, for a uh, hundred or two years, all prisoners had their hair, you know, completely shorn, almost bald. And it was partly just to, like, dehumanize them. Well, uh, and I would assume that lice would have been an issue as well. Lice would have been an issue. And also, uh, it was... Uh, whether intended or not, it was useful to help identify prisoners that escaped. Mm. Uh, any escaped prisoner would have to find somewhere to hole up until, until their hair grew out, because otherwise they could be clearly mm-hmm. recognized. And also at this time, it was ruled that prisoners would be permitted to see visitors without intervening wires and bars. So neither of those things is has been applied to Bates here. He does not have hair cropped that short. And he sees Anna all the time without intervening mm-hmm. wires and bars. So a uh, little anachronism there. Yeah. Not by much. Only by like a year. Baron but. Julian genuinely does not care. <laughs> he said in many, many interviews. <laughs> like He's like, I don't know why people are so concerned about historical accuracy. Blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, it's, it's not that hard. Yeah, it's not that hard. And, and I mean... You know, you put on the screen 1920, then you're the one that's making the claim that this is 1920 yeah. and these things happen then. Anyway, you know, it's not I, – I mean I honestly don't care that much, but I do like catching him out. And the big, the big impetus to that round of reform was conscientious objectors uh, because in World War I, conscientious objectors were put in prison 
tended to not be from the criminal classes. Mm-hmm. And so when they came out and reported on the prisons, uh, the, the prison st- conditions, they were believed because uh-huh. they were of a class that couldn't just be ignored. Okay. Um, so that, that was why things kind of got changed at that point. So yeah, that's what I found out about prisons. I was really kind of hoping for a bit more, but, uh, that's, that's what I came up with. There's okay. some interesting stuff in there. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Let's get back to the episode, shall we? Yes. We're now in Mrs. Bartlett's house, uh, where she tells Anna that she had last seen Vera cooking in her house, in Vera's house. But Vera had had to post a letter, so she walked Mrs. Bartlett down the road. And she told her that Bates was coming back for his tea, and then she was terrified. And apparently she'd been making pastry, mm-hmm. and she was scrubbing the pastry out of her nails very, very frantically. Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Bartlett, yeah. Mrs. Bartlett says as if she didn't care if she tore her own skin off. Yeah. So she posted a letter and then just walked home by herself. And that was the last time Mrs. Bartlett saw, Mrs. Bartlett saw her alive. And she describes this scene where she's like, it was raining. No, drizzling more <laughs> like. And the gas lamps made a halo around her red. And Anna's just like, seriously, Sorry. a halo? Have you met the woman? <laughs> I'm working on a poetry cycle about it. <laughs> what do you think so far? Kill yourself. <laughs> anyway, so when she heard about the death the following day, she knew that it had to be Bates. Uh, she said she was sure that Bates would swing until the country went soft, per right. what we just heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she just starts to sob, and Anna just looks like really conflicted. Like, yeah. oh, this is not what I wanted to hear from you. Yeah. I'm not at all clear why the police didn't talk to her before the trial, and why a solicitor isn't talking to her now mm-hmm. rather than Anna. Yeah. Like that would seem to be, I mean, it would, you know, at first I thought, well, you know, money, but then it seems to me that since Lord Grantham believes that Bates is a wronged man, mm-hmm. I think he's still on that side of things. Yeah. And since, and since it would certainly help him out to have Anna, you know, around being a maid rather than tracing, tracing. all over the county. Yeah. So this seems like what, murray should be doing yeah that seems like exactly his job is to do this sort of thing so i i don't know maybe maybe murray like had a contract dispute (laughs) (laughs) he's like you know what i'm no longer confident that you're going to be able to pay my fees (laughs) like listen your salary offer was an insult i spent that much on mustache maintenance (laughs) i am the walrus (laughs) good day to you sir (laughs) on the road again the Dowager Countess is in a car with Antony and Isabel. Dowager Countess thanks Antony for the ride. It is in his Rolls Royce, by the way. We get a shot of the hood ornament. Uh, Once again, Edith's marrying up. Yeah, indeed. Lord Grantham don't have no Rolls Royce. That's, that's true. Neither does Matthew. <laughs> Sir Antony says that he wishes Isabel would have let him ride in the front seat. And Isabel says she's ridden in the front seat lots of times, which <laughs> I bet she has. <laughs> Ah, yeah. All right. Hilarious. Um, <laughs> Don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> it's fine. Um, but Anthony talks about uh, how safe cars are to the you know concerned Dowager Countess and says that Edith is just a speed demon and she loves to fly about and all this sort of thing. And he seems quite happy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, everything's looking up there. And I'll bet it is. <laughs> Ain't nothing wrong with his dick. <laughs> that we know of. That we know of. Uh, yeah. Also, 
this is kind of a non sequitur, but let us also not forget that last year at this time, Matthew was paralyzed with a dick that didn't work. <laughs> that is true. So I don't want to hear anything <laughs> about Anthony Strallen and his arm. Yeah. At this point, I'm hoping that Matthew gets his dick re-paralyzed. That's how I feel about him. <laughs> it's um, a very strange condition. <laughs> one I've only heard about in Legends. <laughs> Dick re-paralyzation. <laughs> it happened to Henry VIII, and now it's happening to you. I always thought this would happen. I just didn't want to bum you out. <laughs> uh, yes, and the Dowager Countess wonders if Sir Antony will be able to keep up with Edith. Um, and he just kind of like, he's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, they're in the same car. It doesn't take any effort. No. <laughs> in any case, Isabel asks what this house they're going to is like, and uh, the Dowager Countess says that her husband kept the shooting there and that it's not suitable as a permanent home. Well, if it's all the way up near Durham. Yeah, I know, right? So they get to the new house, and McGee loves it. You know, she's... Yeah. McGee. McGee, I think, got on some really good antidepressants, yeah. a.k.a. laudanum, per that telegram. Which, by the... Oh, and I didn't say at the time... I would love a drug addict on this show. Mm-hmm. Let's see that. Yeah. I'm ready. I oh, that would be so great. Yeah, um, that they could have done that with Fake Patrick. Yeah, they could have all believed him. He could have been like a total like opium yeah. freak, and maybe that's what's going on with Ethel. <gasps> oh wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just assume syphilis. <laughs> I just always assume syphilis sure. with prostitutes of a certain era. Well, yeah. You know, modern day prostitutes have access to all the prophylactics that we do right. and back, enjoy. But back then it was the golden age of syphilis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think it was. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was just prior. I, I just wanted to say golden age of syphilis. <laughs> anyway, so McGee really likes it. She gets down. She says, Downton Place. Yeah. And then Lord Grantham just walks away. Well. He doesn't even say anything. He's like, bang. Yeah. So Mary is wondering if it won't be cramped. And, like, this is a gorgeous large house. Yeah, it Clearly is Clearly not nice as looking. big as Downton Abbey. But, again, right. Downton Abbey, to me, looks so large. And yeah. I don't ever think, like, I don't get a sense that they use the whole building. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, and it's hard to say because, obviously, major constraints shooting a television show. Mm-hmm. So, you know. It's very hard for me to right. know exactly what that's like. But, right. anyway, this place... I would love to live in this place. Oh, sure. We're, we will gladly replace that tenant. Mm-hmm. And Branson reminds everyone that most people would think that this house is a fairy palace. Here, here. Literally everyone ignores him. <laughs> yeah. Being civil. <laughs> she just points out that they're going to need a much smaller staff, uh, which you think, you know, a labor enthusiast like Branson <laughs> most certainly is, would be at least a little concerned about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lord Grantham says that they'll only need about eight servants tops, but he stops talking when Alfred comes over and starts, like, like thumbing his nose. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, better that he thinks that you're a cokehead. Uh, right. Way to be also, subtle, dude. Also, do you have any idea how dense this guy is? He is not going <laughs> to pick up on this. They said we'd all be moving here, and most of us would get fired. I don't know what they mean. <laughs> <laughs> The uh, Dowager Countess wonders what's going to happen to her, and apparently they will still own most of uh, the village, Airy Home Village, I guess. Right, and I was like, most of the village, Branson really should kill you all. <laughs> Good lord. Wouldn't that be great? It would be. Wouldn't it be great if Branson just went all Django Unchained? <laughs> <laughs> Got Sybil out of there, went back to Ireland. <laughs> That's right. Um, most of the village. Good lord. So then, I don't really understand this... this 
I thought the Dowager Countess was asking where she was going to live because she right. has her own house. Right. But then she says maybe she'll open a shop in the village. Well, I, I just think she was because if she's going to have to live in the village and not on an estate. So I just thought she was just being sort of sarcastic about how now she's just a fucking tradeswoman all of a sudden. <laughs> well, and then Eve is like, what do you think Ari Holm needs? And she says, oh, just good manners and decent conversation. And it was like, you can't sell that. <laughs> you need a product. They, I mean, otherwise, get, open a whorehouse. I'm sure Isabel could give you some tips. They literally have no idea where money comes from. <laughs> they haven't the slightest idea. And then Isabel says that it, she th- thinks it's unfair that Mary had an archbishop to marry her. And Edith stuck with poor old Mr. Travis. They all talk about Mr. Travis like like he's some kind of broken down old cart horse. Did he or did he not conduct those funerals for those dead Titanic people? Yeah. And just like that he's just like limping around, drooling on himself. Like he's perfectly fine. He's fine. He's upright. He's got two working arms. <laughs> yeah. This is the only instance in which I'm going to call out Sir Anthony's arms. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, they, they, well, they, you know, in previous episodes of this one, just their hatred of Mr. Travis, who's been nothing but nice to them as far as we know. He just runs the church. Yeah. Like, and don't you pay a salary? <laughs> yeah. You hate him so much. <laughs> well, I guess you can't get a young divinity student to come up and take over because... They all kind of died in the war. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, but Isabel brings this up completely apropos of nothing. Yeah. It's the day before the <laughs> wedding. If you had an issue with this, yeah. you really should have said something before. Yeah. But uh, Edith is super classy about it and says that, oh, she doesn't mind. And Mr. Travis is the one that christened them. And so it's great. I wonder if she means that he christened both of them. Because right, I had the originally the first time that I watched it, I assumed she meant her and her sisters. But then the second time, I was like, it would make more sense for her to say that about her and Anthony. Right, and, and it's I think presumably he's young enough, I think, and Travis is because Tra- Travis old enough. is yeah, like it would be. I mean, it would have been one of his first christenings, mm-hmm. but it's it's plausible. Um, yeah, that's that's what I thought too. It wasn't until just now that I realized the age thing. But yeah, yeah. yeah. So Mary and Matthew are walking around, and she asks about Charcombe's visit. And he tells her about the letter from Reggie Swire that he refuses to read because he's a giant pussy. Yeah. He basically just says, if he reads this letter, it's going to be all about what a great person he is. And I'm like, someone's a little full of himself. Yeah. But it's just going to be Reggie Swire being all extolling his many virtues because he was the love of Lavinia's life and blah, 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 blah. And he just, he can't live with that. Well, because Mary says, and what's wrong with that? And he says, when... Or you don't want to hear that? And he says, when she couldn't have picked a worse one? And I'm like, Matthew, you only became the worst man alive very recently. Yes. Like, you were fine then. It was actually even, like, after you killed Lavinia. <laughs> yeah. Because that was kind of an honest mistake. Right. Well, look, it all, the other thing that bugs me as a feminist mm-hmm. is that he keeps trying to deny Lavinia's agency in this whole situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, look, I'm not going to sit here and say that she chose to die because I think that's stupid right she wanted to break off the wedding before she knew she was dying you know Mm -hmm. what i mean she saw the writing on the wall she was like this is what's happening and he just wants to make it all about him Mm -hmm. and it's just ridiculous you know she knew what she was doing she wanted him to be happy well that's what is what they all do in this they all make it about themselves Mm. he has learned well from the master lord grantham (laughs) You know who doesn't make it about himself who? or herself? 
ISIS. <laughs> ISIS is my co-pilot. <laughs> okay. When there was only one set of footprints, <laughs> ISIS was carrying me. <laughs> that is impressive. I know. <laughs> are- She's stronger than she looks. <laughs> I mean, you really should have been able to figure that one out because there were paws. But, uh. I was very drunk. <laughs> I know, Kelly. <laughs> Downstairs, uh, I guess it's back at Downton. It is. Yeah, downstairs. Uh, as is- far as we know, they don't even have a downstairs at Downton Place. <laughs> right. Where are the servants going to be? The stables? <laughs> but Isabel makes her way downstairs and asks Mrs. Hughes for Ethel's, uh, for Ethel's address because Ethel has fallen into a bad way. A very bad way. They had a lot of ways to say prostitute back then. None of them being prostitute. Yeah. Well, but that was something that impressed me, actually. I don't know why it impressed me, but I really liked the detail in the scene where Ethel comes, you know, the pointless mm-hmm. scene where she comes and runs right, away right. again. But Ethel can't even say the word prostitute. Mm-hmm. Isabel can. Isabel can, What yeah. with her, you know, land yeah. of gentry privilege. Right. But Ethel can't even say it out loud. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that that was such a nice detail. Right. About that character. And, and I'll say... As much as Isabel is a rich old lady that doesn't really know what she's doing, all this sort of thing, she's trying to help. She is really trying. She is really trying to help, and she's trying to say, just because you're a prostitute, it doesn't mean you're not a person, Mm -hmm. and and all this sort of thing. So she's she's doing, in her way, what she can do. And I mean, people are still saying that literally right now. I guarantee you that somewhere (laughs) in downtown Oakland right now, a person is telling a prostitute to her face that she's not a person. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Isabel, perhaps we're tarring you with too dirty a brush. Yeah. At murder prison, (laughs) Bates is digging around in his mattress uh, until he finds something. Something. It's some sort of packet. Is it? It looked to me like a small bundle of sticks. I, I was like, it is was, that contraband it, in prison, having a small bundle of it sticks? It looked like a tamale wrapper to me. Oh, yeah. I see that. Yeah. Um, we tried to find on the internet what the hell that could be. Yeah. But the best we have come up with in our own watching it was that it was tobacco. Right. Like right. contraband tobacco. Well, it, and looked, then, it looked like shreds coming out of it yeah. at one point of something. So. Uh, and then somebody on the Onion AV Club suggested that it was like opium or something, yeah. which that seems... Right. And I like mean, maybe to, I don't know what. And to an extent, it doesn't. Why didn't you do any more research into the uh, opium problem in these prisons? Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, opium in general. Uh, we should get on that. Yeah. But um, I mean, you know, it doesn't really matter what it was. All you know, it was some sort of contraband. But they do keep really like focusing on it. it the camera work implies that we can tell what it is, but we but, couldn't. But we can't. And I don't. Yeah. Have you ever been in a British prison in 1920? <laughs> Have you ever been caught with any contraband? If so, did it resemble this contraband? And what did you do with it? Yeah. Also, did they cut your hair real short? (laughs) (laughs) And cure your lip. Anyway, it's funny, though, to me, because, like, Bates is, like, rooting around in his bunk. And, like, we know that his roommate knows that there's something planted. Right. So, like, wouldn't you, if you were that roommate, like, try to, like, bonk him on the head or something and stop him? Well, I think the roommate is just being like, you know what? He ain't got no proof that I was involved. Even if he knows, he doesn't know, and I'm not going to... That's true. Yeah. I mean, I will say, however, prison guards, wow, you're terrible at your job. They were They barely even he searched was, the room. He was holding it in his hand. All we have a fight in their hands are their dicks. <laughs> 
those aren't contraband. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> no, and, and like, <laughs> they all come in and they're clearly disappointed. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. Like, if it was a random search, like, that you're just doing every day and, you know, whatever, but they clearly had a tip. You're not, you're not going to search this person seriously. This must be the most boring prison ever <laughs> because they were so excited. <laughs> yeah. They were like, Oh, it's time. It's time. It's time to, to bust some skulls. <laughs> but alas. Yeah. Uh, so they leave, the guards leave without finding anything right. because they didn't look very hard. <laughs> right. And they tell Bates and Craig to clean up the mess that they made. And then Craig calls them bastards and Bates says, there's a lot of bastards in here. So come on, Bates. <laughs> Kill somebody. Or Craig, shank him. Yeah. Shank Bates. Shank Bates. Solve everyone's problems. I will say there's a lot less Bates in this episode. True. Which is a relief. Well, But and- they're clearly setting up some bullshit that we're going to have to deal with later. They are. Well, and here's the thing about it. Like, if this just become – if he was just guilty and everybody knew it and this would become an entirely different – separate mm-hmm. story of him dealing with life in a prison it wouldn't be terrible like i haven't really hated the stuff that's just him in prison mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense why it's in this show but as scenes by themselves yeah and him in it i'm okay with them yeah no and it's just like why you know anna has to be dragged into this like right. exactly well because she doesn't then get to do anything else interesting except yeah, this for be everybody's she... sort of like pleasant downstairs yeah, auntie. This is all she does anymore and she's still nice and likable but it just doesn't who cares anymore. Anyway. Well, and I just I just have a like I have said before that I would be more interested if he had in fact killed Vera. Right. But at the same time I've been thinking about it a bit more just in the way they set up his character in season 1. Mm-hmm. And it would be such a retcon. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's, yeah. I just, you know, it's just very hard to understand where they're going to take it that's actually yeah. going to make any sense. Right. Agreed. Down in the servants' hall, the servants are eating dinner. Molesley expects that Anna is tired. Uh, Mrs. Hughes asks her if the journey was worth it, and she says, not really. We agree. Um, oh, come on. Those two gypsy washerwomen, they were <laughs> worth the price of admission. Sure. Carson asks Mr. Molesley, uh, what it is that Mrs. O'Brien has confided to him, Mrs. O'Brien has confided in him, but has hidden from everyone else. Uh, so that really could have been handled better. <laughs> it's true. So get ready to see what the the next piece of Thomas's plan was, because obviously there had to be something else. Obviously, Mosley uh, reveals that O'Brien is planning to leave, and she is pissed, mm-hmm. and rightly so. Yeah. You know, obviously, she never wants to leave. And Thomas takes this moment to guiltily <laughs> ask Carson, isn't it time for the dinner gong? I, I mean, I, I will say this for Thomas. Part of the way he gets away with it is just that he always acts weird and suspicious. That's true. So <laughs> I'll, I'll grant you that. Um, and Carson says, it's, it is indeed. And uh, so they, they all get up and, and go. Thomas is like, I have work to do. And O'Brien says to Mosley, I'll deal with you later. And Daisy says, oh, I wouldn't be in her bad books for a bad clock. A gold clock. A gold clock. Bad. That Which, wasn't even a good... How did would I... a gold clock even work? <laughs> like, is the whole thing made of gold? Because gold is very soft. Right. But and I you think need what, the gears to turn. I think what you, you could do is sell it and purchase many working clocks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. Mostly so, looks like his entire bowels just turned to water. <laughs> yeah. 
So either we'll get to, to finally see what the point of Thomas's plan was in the next scene, or maybe his theory was just that Molesley would just splutter himself to death. That actually... That would be a good scheme. He very nearly does. He says nothing to anyone and just... Mostly just does not fit in with the staff. He doesn't. Even more so than O'Brien and Thomas, because it's like everybody can kind of yeah tolerate them like they understand they're kind of fuck nuttery yeah but with Molesley, he's just such a nothing of a person yeah and i mean you know it makes sense that he doesn't fit in i mean he's he's not as much of a nothing as alfred i'll say that for him mm. i don't know though like the things that alfred has said that i've enjoyed i've enjoyed more than anything Molesley has ever done that's true yeah i guess all it is about Molesley is I that i don't hate him and uh-huh. i value that in a downton abbey character <laughs> Up in McGee's room, O'Brien has been trying to sort of smooth things over with McGee. But McGee insists that O'Brien must have said something to Molesley that he misinterpreted. And O'Brien protests. But McGee says, I feel very let down. Which, you feel let down because of a rumor that she's trying to tell you has no basis in reality? Yeah. I mean, maybe the implication is that, like, O'Brien should never talk about anything of substance with anyone other than McGee. Because we have seen that McGee can be very proprietary. And O'Brien can be very proprietary about that relationship. Right, And we saw that in Manor House as well, which obviously is not reality any more than this is. Yeah. But, you know, Miss Morrison definitely felt very proprietary about her relationship mm-hmm. with lady oc right right that's true so i think it is just sort of what's ingrained in this relationship yeah. and i think you know since uh miss o'brien caused mcgee's miscarriage it's been a little hard for the audience to kind <laughs> of like really buy into that right but that was a long long time ago it was a long time ago anyway mrs hughes comes in and, and o'brien is sent away so Please. that's god forbid they tell Mrs. Hughes to wait for 15 seconds and resolve this conflict, but... Well, Baron Julian probably has a plan for another pointless scene. Fair enough. Uh, so, McGee tells Mrs. Hughes that it's come to her attention that she knows that she's ill and tells her that if her illness is confirmed, she's welcome to stay at Downton and the family will take care of her. Uh, she does not mention the fact that they're losing Downton, but, you know, I right. assume, you know, the implication is, you know, she's yeah, yeah, in the yeah. Downton place and convalesce. And it is a really sweet scene. It's really sweet. As much as I didn't like the scene between McGee and O'Brien that just happened, yeah. the scene between Mrs. Hughes and McGee is just so good. It's so good because Mrs. Hughes doesn't is you know, doesn't want McGee to know about it and is upset at first, but then just like Yeah. Oh, it's very good. Mm-hmm. They it get a little misty there. Yeah. He's getting a little misty right now. Yeah. Um True facts. Yeah. I can't get over how much I like McGee in this season. I know. Yeah. It's completely insane. Yeah. I just, she is the only sane person left. Yeah. Everyone else has lost their goddamn minds. <laughs> yeah. Except for Mrs. Hughes. But like, you know, she's under duress right now. Right. So she's right. not like yeah. at the top of her game. Yeah. Up in the drawing room, uh, Edith is discussing their honeymoon. Uh, she's apparently not supposed to know, but of course she does, that they will be spending two weeks in Rome and then on to Venice and Florence. Which I wonder, are those like the cut rate versions of the south of France since everything else she's gotten has been cut rate? I, I don't know. Yeah. I, mean, I guess seems... it kind of depends on, on what was fashionable. Well, they True. don't like Italians yeah. in general. But that... it, like, 
But that was certainly part of like the grand tour. Yeah. As we saw in a room with a view. Right. Right. So, and well, and also actually, as I said that, I realized that that would be Sir Anthony's decision, not the family's decision, Uh like everything else about the wedding. So yeah. Um, in any case, Sybil asks, is there lots to be done at Loxley? And well, robbing the rich to feed the poor, (laughs) but that won't take long. We're very dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and she says it's it's quite nice, and uh, Marius butts in that the downstairs is nice, the upstairs is a disaster or something like How that. How would you even know? Yeah, what have you been doing up there? Hmm. Is there a Turkish diplomat up there that we should know about? <laughs> Stay out of that one bedroom. It smells ghastly. <laughs> um... Why does Mary sound like Kathleen Turner all of a sudden in this scene, too? I, I can't answer She's like, that. the downstairs is fine, but the <laughs> bedroom's a killer (laughs) like i have expected to say i'd do anything for my husband mr valiant (laughs) anything she would too she would apparently despite his puffiness (laughs) yeah Uh, the dowager countess suggests that edith should go to bed you don't want to be a tired bride everybody will think you're nervous or we're up to no good I can attest that I was up to no good the night before our wedding. I can attest, too. I was there. You were. It was fantastic. <laughs> it, it was a good we time. We were up to no good together. That's right. Edith says that she won't sleep a wink, and Sybil says she won't sleep t- that night or tomorrow night. <laughs> the Dowager Countess says that vulgarity is no substitute for wit. That was pretty witty. And Sybil says, but I haven't got any wit. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, she says, but you started it, Granny, which is quite true. It is true. Yeah. Back downstairs, <laughs> Mosley apologizes profusely to O'Brien, not wanting to be in her bad books. And uh, he reveals that Thomas is the one who told him the misinformation that she was leaving. So then O'Brien does an about face and just says, okay, yeah. you know, I don't know why I didn't see that this was what was going on, because you're clearly a moron. Right. Uh, with no backbone. And uh, Mosley keeps saying, oh, I'm sure it was just an honest mistake. And she says, well, the next time you see Mr. Barrow, you tell him I'll be making some honest mistakes of my own. Yeah. Which is one of the greatest threats this show has ever seen. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what does that even mean? Yeah. And, well, yeah. I've been making it clear throughout this recap, but I hate this plot line so much. Mm-hmm. Because what? There's no way that Thomas would have put together this scheme. It doesn't make any sense. His schemes never make any... Well, okay. But see, that's the, the thing. The schemes have made sense, but they are flawed in their execution. Yeah, they've been flawed. They've gone wrong. He's screwed them up. But this one, there was... What did he... Th- He's not... I think he might just be trying to sow discord between O'Brien and McGee, which is working. Yeah, but it's not going to last. You know, for God's sake... She McGee does have the uh, memory of a goldfish. Well, yeah, O'Brien caused her miscarriage, but she like, was never found out, like, and she never confessed. That's true, but I just don't. It makes no sense to me. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. I don't know because just there's no way for it. Like, why even be secret? I, anyway, I can't handle it. There's no way he wasn't going to get found He's out. He's broken out into a sweat, people. <laughs> yeah, he was obviously he was going to get found out. Like, if the plan was that he was going to get found out but also achieve some other goal, then fine. The thing that really baffles me is why he would loop Molesley in on this. Because Molesley is the least capable of pulling off a scheme. Like, I'd rather go in on a scheme with Alfred and Daisy. (laughs) Yeah. Both. Yeah. 
Uh, the servants all go in to eat their dinner, and, O'Bri- and O'Brien's just glaring at Thomas. <laughs> and then Alfred invites Daisy to sit down and eat, but she says she can't. And then Carson tells him it's not his gift to make an invitation of that nature. Yeah. Uh, and that Daisy always, you know, eats in the kitchen with Mrs. Patmore, which is true. Right. And then Alfred asks if she'll play a game with him after dinner. And Mrs. Patmore just looks at him and she's like, Daisy's busy. <laughs> And everybody's like, dude, Ixnay on the AZ day, the last time she married a footman. Oh, boy. Uh, then he asks Anna if she wants to play a game with him, and she says that she has to write a letter. And then Mosley says he'll play. And Alfred's like, ah, let's see how we feel. Yeah. And, like, that's what I do like about Alfred. Like, despite the fact that I kind of no, feel yeah, bad yeah. for Mosley, he's just like, hmm. Well, Al- Alfred's like, listen. I've got a taste for the ladies now, Mosley. I don't know what you think I'm doing here. A gypsy kissed me. I don't know what you think I meant by a game, but I meant it, (laughs) comma, doing. (laughs) Up in Matthew and Mary's room, Matthew is angry. What a shock. Yes, because Mary read his letter about the Swire Gold uh, without asking his permission. I wonder, did she, like, sleight of hand it out of his coat? Yeah, I don't know, but he probably stuck it in his desk and she just went through it. She probably goes through his desk all the time just to make sure that he's also not also losing all of their money. Good point. <laughs> I hope she's learned. Um, and it turns out that Lavinia wrote to Reggie Swire at, on the day of her death after Matthew had refused to call off the wedding. And so uh, Reggie Swire was aware of everything and said that if any guilt, grief, or repentance or anything else was causing you to not want this money, I, I insist that you take it. For God's sake. He's basically Reggie Swire speaking for the audience at this point. Yeah. Saying, seriously, what what is wrong with you? Take the fucking money. He's a deus ex machina. He, he really is. It's it's a little clunky. It's very clunky. It's quite This clunky. makes Greek drama look subtle. Yeah. It's like, yeah. And Matthew then uh, says that he, – he, he's like, I hope you didn't write it. And she, offended as she should be, is like, well, I would think you would know his hand. And he says, not to test a forgery. And then he's like, well, I'm not accusing you of having forged it, just that someone did. And I'm like, Who oh, yeah. Who else would forge that's, it? That's a very plausible theory there, Matthew. God. Is what? he on his period? Like, seriously, what is going on? Twit. So he's a twit. Right. Lord Grantham's a twat. <laughs> Who's a twat? <laughs> well, well, we may not have met them yet. We'll, we'll see what happens. I hope it's Isis. <laughs> you hope everyone's Isis. I do. <laughs> I want a stuffed Isis. So, not the real Isis. No, no. Like I, a toy. I, I understand. I'll, I'll investigate. I break for animals <laughs> as long as I see them first. Well, sure. Mrs. Hughes is up in her parlor still working and Carson tells her to go to bed. And uh, she asks Carson if he said anything to McGee about her. That he is a terrible liar still. And he's like, right. blah, blah, blah. no, what, who, uh, where am I? <laughs> right. I have amnesia. Am I back with a cheerful Charlie? <laughs> uh, but she says, you know, not to worry about her or anything. But she, she says that she was very touched by a very kind thing mm-hmm. that McGee said to her. Yeah. And uh, she says, I know I don't worship all of them like you do. And Carson's like, I never said that. <laughs> but uh, I always love it when she calls him out on his yeah. reverence for the family. Yeah. But it is it is a very touching moment mm-hmm. at the risk of reusing that word. It, it is. But she just, you know, 
Mrs. Hughes very much views this as a job that she yeah. has. Yeah. You know? And it doesn't well, and leave she, her much time for an inner life, but. Right. Well, and she, you know, when you're an employee, you always have to keep in the back of your mind the possibility that you'll get fired. No matter how close you are to your employers, you have to right. keep that in your mind. And so she had to be aware of the possibility that she would be left on her own to deal with, with this, you know, cancer if she mm-hmm. has it. So, yeah, yeah. It's a nice little scene. Yeah. Really great work by uh, Phyllis Logan. This in- entire this entire arc has yeah, been fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, it's the next day. Birds are chirping. It's a wedding. It must be. It, it is. And Mary goes downstairs to the servants' hall. Uh, and they all stand up, of course. She says she's sorry to interrupt, uh, but she just wants to find out if anyone there posted a letter from Lavinia on the day she died. And Carson says, uh, you know, they all look around. Carson says no, and uh, that it would have been reported to him and, or Mrs. Hughes. Mrs. Hughes agrees. So she says, well, sorry for bothering you, and heads out. And then Daisy comes in and is like, what was that about? <laughs> and they they tell her, and she's like, oh, I posted that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Mary comes back in, and all the servants who just sent da- sat down are like, and get up again. <laughs> um, and yeah it's like going to mass <laughs> it is and you know yeah daisy posted a letter for lavinia poor miss wire i still get sad thinking about it and uh yeah so sh- so she did it and mrs hughes is like and you didn't think to tell us about it and she says tell you about what but you know what she wouldn't have ever been responsible for posting a letter like right. they, well, they I, never would have seen fit to train her no it struck me as slightly odd it was like what are you mrs hughes the postmaster general <laughs> what she <laughs> could be <laughs> so yeah uh daisy posted the letter mary says that she's so grateful and that you can't know how much of course she can't she's in a different social class and she's the dumbest person ever <laughs> yeah she still doesn't know what she did. Yeah. <laughs> or what letters are. <laughs> it was uh, this strange little package. Up in the library, Lord Grantham is telling the Dowager Countess that he's glad that Edith and Antony decided to rush the wedding so she could be married from Downton. And then the Dowager Countess says, this scene is so upsetting. Yeah. The Dowager Countess says that she thinks a little self-reflection wouldn't have gone amiss. And what... Re- she has been into Sir Anthony Strallen for six years mm-hmm. at this point. She has had plenty of time to reflect. Yeah. Come on, people. And by reflect, we mean masturbate. <laughs> uh, Lord Grantham says that, oh, we should try to be positive. Sir Anthony is the most traditional choice. And as has been pointed out on this very podcast, the most wealthy choice. Yeah. The most secure choice. Uh, then the Dowager Countess says that Edith will be starting her life out as an old man's drudge. And seriously? Yeah. Her scale of Maggie Smith's score is dropping like a stone. It absolutely Through very is. little fault of Maggie Smith herself. Right. And that's the one thing I'll say in her defense, and it's partly very much due to Maggie Smith's performance, and particularly in this little scene, is that she makes it clear that she really does think Edith will be unhappy. Mm-hmm. She thinks she knows best. Edith is making a mistake that will leave her miserable and regretting that she ever did this. Yes. You know, we vehemently disagree and think that she's wildly off base on this but lord grantham is just like thinks it's reflects badly on him uh-huh. essentially like yeah. lord you know lord grantham's the worst Dowger this countess, is not up for discussion yeah the dowager countess very bad in this episode but at least 
seems to... There's at least a consistency here. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, she's been very clear since the beginning of the season that they need to put an end to this. Right, right. Whereas Lord Grantham has been his typical wishy-washy self. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm much more willing to take it from her than I am from him. Yeah. He just agrees with whoever talked to him last. Yeah. No. He really does. Mm-hmm. He is the worst kind of soap opera character. Mm-hmm. He's the Ethan Crane of Downton Abbey, <laughs> for those of you who have or are now currently addicted to passions. <laughs> sure. I'm not among that group. Downstairs, I think Mrs. Hughes's parlor, Carson tells Mrs. Hughes that if she feels tired at any time, he'll take over whatever she is doing. And asks if she's sure she wants to go to the church, she could have a lie down instead. And she, while putting on her coat, says that it would be nice if everyone would wait until she actually finds out if she is ill before boxing her up. And Carson and Mrs. Patmore are both like, what? Never heard of illness. I don't know what it is. <laughs> and it's just like Mrs. It's great because of the three heads downstairs, Mrs. Hughes is smarter than Carson and Patmore put together. At least as far as lying and concealment goes. Yeah. Well, and you know, I like Patmore and Carson. Oh, yeah. Totally. But neither of them are mental giants. True. Yeah. And Mrs. Hughes says that she's going to get the results of the test tomorrow afternoon. Dr. Clarkson has let her know that the results are coming. So that's that's happening. Anna is finishing up dressing Mary. And Matthew comes in and says she looks marvelous. Anna <laughs> leaves. Mary says she feels marvelous. Because it turns out that Reggie's letter is for real. She tells him, you know, about Daisy having posted it. And Matthew looks like his head is going to explode. Yeah, he's like, but, but I had my heart set on ruining your life. So basically Mary says that she will smack him about his head repeatedly if he refuses the money at this point. And then Matthew says, okay, on one condition, they can't say anything until after Edith's wedding. Mary looks truly happy for the first time this entire series. Yeah. Uh, and, and we breathe, like, I think we both, like, actually out loud we're like thank god yeah we're also happy as we finally see the end of this particular arc on the horizon yes no downton place for us (laughs) yeah uh up in edith's room she is wearing her wedding dress oh my god yeah so beautiful it's very it is one of the most beautiful. beautiful wedding dresses i've ever seen yeah it's just gorgeous the veil is beautiful yeah it's just fantastic and it's got more going on than mary's you know i i understand like we liked mary's it was very simple Mm -hmm. um you know we liked it other people not so much but i think every you know as far as i know we all agree that this is better Mm -hmm. like it's nicer looking it is yeah and she's really pretty we never saw it before this season we have just her and nick g yeah just complete 180 this season yeah and i i was very relieved because i really felt like when we got to the scene in the in the episode that she was just going to be wearing like a canvas sack <laughs> <laughs> with like a rose crammed on it or something <laughs> just cuz everything else about this wedding has been so what an interesting dress who made it isis <laughs> i thought you meant lucille the dressmaker no just some just some bag lady <laughs> yeah that's her bag she gave it, to you. it was all she had in the world 
And Edith looks at herself in the mirror. Mary and Sybil are holding her train and says that all the Crawley girls are married and happy and first baby on the way with Sybil and suggests that they should get a photo of the three of them once they get to the church. And very, very happy and radiant as a bride on her wedding day should be. And at the church, the Dowager Countess is being seated by poor old Travis. And she says that he looks like he's waiting for a beating from the headmaster. Right. Which he kind of, he does look a little bit nervous. But he does. Yeah. I was very nervous before my wedding. It's sure. just, you know, it's a big it's, deal. It's, it's a nervous time. It's Nothing a nervous wrong with time. that. And then yeah. uh, Travis says maybe he should go over and reassure him. Uh, and the Dowager Countess says, well, he's done this before. He has all the facts. <laughs> yeah. And he says maybe the first Lady Stralin was a tough act to follow. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the Dowager Countess says, or maybe a tough one to repeat. Right. So Which... these are the jokes. She means that he wasn't happy in his first marriage. So mm. he's worried that his second marriage is also oh, going I to see. be unhappy. Fair enough. Now, out in front of the church, the photographer is taking the aforementioned photo of the three sisters, and Mary tells Edith that she's always hated her and plans to continue hating her in the future. <laughs> For this one day, she wishes Edith all the luck in the world. I know. I just I have it written down. I've never liked you and never will. Where was I going with this? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they share a sisterly kiss, and everybody goes into the church. Lord Grantham has made some comment about being fashionably late, and I'm like, they're taking one photo. Yeah, you horrible old man. <laughs> like you're more of a curmudgeon than Sir Anthony Stralin. It's like, listen, ISIS is waiting for me. <laughs> Where to go frolic in the meadow? <laughs> in the church. Oh, by the way, we didn't see the village lining the streets for Edith. Yeah, Just throwing surprise, that out there. Surprise. Mm. Well, she's not inheriting anything, is she? Well, that's true. Um, she's not going to be their benevolent overlord. <laughs> that, so. No, that's that's a fair point. Lord Grantham walks Edith down the aisle. She's so pretty. Uh, and she says, good afternoon to Antony. And he says, good afternoon, my sweet one. Aww, it's so cute. It's very cute. And I, I mean, I have it written in capital letters. She looks so happy. Travis starts up the ceremony and Antony interrupts him and says, I can't do this. Which? And, what? Yeah. He says, he says, this is wrong. You know this is wrong. You told me so on many occasions. And he's speaking not to Lord talking Grantham. to Edith. Like, yeah. that really bugged me. Yeah. I was like, how dare you? Yeah. This is not the time or the place. Even Lord Grantham says it's this is it's too late for that or, or words to that effect. Yeah. You know, that this is not the time to be doing this. Um, and Edith, Edith says that I don't understand. We're going to be so happy, aren't we? So terribly happy. We were weeping. And just weeping yeah oh because she is so clinging to this is her day this is her day and he's ruining it yeah ruining it for her yeah it's so awful and travis says perhaps we should just all take a step back which by the way very nicely done travis Mm -hmm. i don't know that the archbishop would have been so known the right way to handle like i'm out (laughs) back to york for me drop the mic (laughs) where did he get that um, and, uh, but the Dowager Countess insists that, uh, no, let him go. This, this is the right thing. She You'll... says it's the first sensible thing he's done in months. It's yeah. just, it is awful. It's it is so, so awful. awful. I can't tell you how much we were crying when we saw this the first time. It was so terrible. I can't even tell you because we, and I think some people kind of saw this coming. We, and on the rewatch, on, we, on the rewatch, we should have. We should have. And it may have been different if we had been really watching, like if we had watched it the way as, that everybody else did. Right. Um, but like, 
when we watched it this time, we were like, oh, she's clearly far too happy. Yeah. Like, this is clearly going to go off with not... Like, this is Downton Abbey. Right. There was right. never a wedding they couldn't delay with some bullshit. Yeah. So we were fools, but we were totally... We thought it was happening. Yeah. We were, we were so happy for Edith. We were so happy. Oh, my God. It was devastating. It was like our wedding got canceled. Yeah. It was really... Like... As much as anything else has happened in the series, that, like, destroyed us uh-huh. when we saw it. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. And we see, you know, everybody's, you know, expressing varying levels of concern. Carson is pissed. He is so angry. Yeah. I never thought I'd see him get this angry on Edith's behalf. Yeah. And I would just like also to state for the record that I put the lion's share of the blame on this on Lord Grantham. Mm-hmm. Um, because all, again, all he had to do in that last conversation was just reach out a little bit and make an effort to say that it's okay instead of just so passive aggressively treating him like yeah. that. Well, it's, and it's like, what is your deal, man? Is it like, oh, why can't they all be Matthew? Matthew sucks now, but maybe that's why he likes him so much. Yeah. No, he's, he's been molding him into his own form and Here's the question that, and we had actually asked ourselves this earlier in the episode, but where is Mackel? Seriously? Because Mackel, if she had been here, would have punched everybody in the church until the wedding happened. <laughs> she would not <laughs> have allowed this to happen. No, absolutely not. Oh my god. It's just, and it's just so... Well, and it's like, he clearly just decided it at the altar, because mm-hmm. he goes out to his car... Anthony does. <laughs> and his chauffeurs are standing there having a cigarette and they see him coming. They're like, oh shit. Yeah. We thought we had like 15 minutes. Like, yeah. what is this? <laughs> that, that, that was pretty funny. Yeah. yeah. It almost, it didn't make up for how sad we were. No, it didn't. But at well, least but... it provided a little levity. Yeah. In this dark hour. Yes. Speaking of dark hours, <laughs> it's now time for our other recurring segment in which our transatlantic trollop Kelly Anakin. Oh, that's me. That's right. Uh, we'll tell us a little bit about the fashion of the day in a segment we call Fashion Backwards. Thank you. There wasn't a ton for fashion, once again, right? Uh, this particular episode. But when we were talking about where Mackell was, we speculated that perhaps, you know, undertaking a transatlantic voyage twice in the same month might be a bit taxing. Yeah. A trifle taxing. Mm-hmm. So I thought I would look into what travel looked like in 1920 Mm -hmm. now commercial airports kind of as we know them you know with a ticket counter and a place to wait for the plane didn't really exist until 1929 uh even at that point most airfields were just that you know you Mm -hmm. went to the airfield you got in the plane that was it anybody here got a plane but um planes were becoming a little more common because after world war one pilots would sort of fly their way town to town in their planes, which were made of, like, canvas and wood. Mm-hmm. And they would, you know, sh- kind of show off their skills, and then they would sometimes ferry people from town to town to make a little extra money. Mm. Um, and it's worth noting, you know, Lindbergh didn't cross the Atlantic until 1927, mm-hmm. uh, although dirigibles had been making the crossing since 1919. Mm. Uh, airplanes were mainly used for mail delivery because they couldn't bear a lot of weight at that point. Mm-hmm. And even the so-called golden age of dirigibles did not begin until 1924. So, you know, we're, we're still at least four years away from people really getting into any sort of air travel, Mm -hmm. uh, for long distances. And travel was way up in 1920. The value of the currency of America, of Britain, of France, of Germany, and of Italy 
all skyrocketed after the war. You know, mm. there was a lot of new manufacturing mm-hmm. and obviously trade had opened up again. So there was right. sort of this little boom in the 1920s mm-hmm. and um, traveling became less a status symbol and more something that middle class people it's not entirely without status, but it had been reserved as this luxury for the extremely wealthy for so many years. Mm-hmm. And now the middle classes were finally able to actually have leisure time. Mm-hmm. So, well, it's the same thing that happened with air travel after deregulation. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure when that was, like the 70s yeah. or so. Well, because the other thing, too, is the time commitment. Because in order to take a transatlantic cruise mm-hmm. in either direction... You had a lot 10 days for that. Mm-hmm. And for many middle class people up until this point, you could not get 10 days away from your uh, job. Right, right. In the 1920s, uh, the cost of a round trip transatlantic voyage dropped to about $110. Oh. And companies really started um, marketing differently. Mm-hmm. You really see more aggressive marketing techniques happening at this point. Companies were offering you know, discounts, all-in-one bargains. Uh, to reduce costs on board the ship. Mm-hmm. And Cunard Business News basically compared the American dollar's value to the British pound and then all of those other currencies that I mentioned. And the U.S. dollar was worth much more than those. Mm. So they were kind of really courting the American travel dollars mm-hmm. in that way. And... um they actually they instituted a new class of cabins, tourist class cabins, which they sort of took some of their steerage cabins and, you know, kind of upgraded them. You know, I probably in many cases just called them tourist class. Right, right. You know, but the idea was that you could then go to the continent or to Britain, see all of this history you'd been learning about. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, not break the bank doing it. Um, clothing for steamship travel... This was really interesting to me. Obviously, this is a more middle class okay. approach than what we kind of looked at with Titanic. You can always use more middle class insight. Yes. Um, so clothing for steamship travel was very simple. It had to be very durable. Uh, it had to keep you warm and just, you know, basically not be too complicated in case of an accident. This mm-hmm. is, after all, eight years after the Titanic. Right. So things have changed a bit. So for women... The essentials were one tailor-made suit, one pair of thick silk or woolen tights, four sets of combination undergarments, shirt waists, a sweater, a woolen wrapper for going to the bath, a dressy bodice for dinner, a pair of shoes with rubber soles or heels, and three pairs of pajamas. I don't really know why you need so many pairs of pajamas. <laughs> I usually wear the same pair for a week, but yeah. your mileage may vary. <laughs> a man required a black coat for dinner with the necessary shirts for evening attire, an old suit, Woolen, woolen underclothing, a generous supply of handkerchiefs and socks, several pairs of pajamas, just several, not three, a bathrobe and slippers, and the requisite ties and collars. So people were scaling back a bit. Yeah. I mean, again, it makes perfect sense. It is sort of the decline of this opulent age right. and really the rise of just practicality. Mm-hmm. Seasickness then, as now, was a big problem. And uh, I found this list of some interesting cures for seasickness, although there is no <laughs> mm-hmm. cure. There's only, you know, things you can use to treat it. Passengers would take their precautions. They would pack things on board. Uh, some of these cures included putting cotton in the ears, taking a pinch of bicarbonate of soda, taking powdered charcoal orally after every meal, mm. and sniffing ammonia each morning, which to me would make it worse. But that's yeah. just me. 
People would try to drink a lot of hot water. Some people would have a diet of well-chewed beef for the first three days at sea. And then more reliable were just exercise, careful eating, and then drinking either Vichy or Arpenta water, which I think is like sparkling water. Uh, yeah. Uh, or a mild purgative, which to me seems like that's like, you know, when you take a depression uh, depression medication that causes suicidal thoughts. <laughs> right, but whatever. Right. Well, mild as opposed to severe. There was a uh, powder in gelatin capsules called Mothersill's Seasick Remedy, and that was uh, advocated by Bishop Taylor Smith, who was the, chap- the chaplain general of the British forces, <laughs> uh, and, you know, doctors, scientists, and other people who were kind of high up. Right, right. And then the Shredded Wheat Company advertised Triscuits as the perfect toast, the traveler's delight, a satisfying, sustaining food on land or sea. Oh. So Triscuits, uh, now kind of a you know, party cracker right. were initially invented to combat seasickness. Interesting. Car rental kind of started to be a thing at this point. Yeah. Uh, but what was actually more convenient was to bring your own car because mm. to rent a car in Europe just for a day, it could be $500. Oh, wow. So it made a lot more sense to take it with you on board, which would explain why in Titanic there is that car yeah. below decks. Well, it's interesting that the relative cost was so high then. And I think it's because it's, there's uh, people are so much more like constrained by the legal system. Like if you run off with a rental car now, you're pretty much going to get, you know, caught or, yeah. you know, you'll, you can't escape from that. Whereas back then, if you just wanted to run off with a rental car. You could just run off with a rental car. Yeah. Especially if you were on the continent because you could just go to another country and, yeah. you know, they couldn't touch you. Yeah. Plus, if you bring your own car and you need a place to bang later. Then you got that. Yeah. Uh, but the cost for taking the motor car abroad was about 200 to $300. Okay. And that would generally be handled by American Express. Oh. Uh, so it was easier for Americans traveling. And then if you were going to England, you didn't have to pay a duty for an automobile entering the country. Mm. But France and Germany, the cost was about $12. Okay. And then um, once the duty was paid in France, they would attach a seal to a conspicuous part of the car, something that was visible. And then when they left, the seal would be removed by an official and they would refund the duty to you. Oh, okay. Uh, Germany obviously probably kept it as they kind of had to like – rebuild their entire <laughs> right. government and uh and their and society economy. yes yeah um one thing that i found interesting is that you did not require a passport as a rule hmm. if you were traveling to any part of germany they wanted kind of like your papers to be like why are you in germany uh-huh. russia was the only place that really re- required a passport hmm. and traveling in russia sounded terrifying <laughs> in those days like yeah. it, you just were never sure what was happening or what was going on yeah um, I, I think it's still a bit concerning, yeah, it honestly. Uh, and I also tried to look up how Sybil and Branson would have been traveling. I assume uh-huh. it would have been kind of like on a cargo boat. Yeah. You know, probably not an ocean liner. Mm-hmm. Um, something a little bit more modest. Yeah. But I couldn't find anything. Well, I would think there would be about it. There would be pretty regular ferries, I would think. Yeah, there is actually, and that's places. what I did find is that. Yeah. Contemporary travel it is primarily ferries between so right, right. i can only assume that that is that was the case at the time yeah so that's a little info on travel all right well thank you you're welcome <sighs> back to the show <laughs> it is so very sad it is so very sad edith runs into the house crying and runs past alfred who is very confused but probably not about that 
<laughs> right. He's just uh, generally kind of like, whoa. As she runs upstairs sobbing, he calls out, would you like to play a game later? <laughs> um, and Edith throws her veil down the stairs and goes into her room and rips her tiara off and just collapses sobbing it's on her bed. Such, she does such... Laura yeah, Carmichael... Laura Carmichael... Does such a good job here. Yeah. And she, it had to hurt to rip that thing out of her hair. Yeah. But she... I mean, she hits a home run mm-hmm. in this episode. Absolutely. Absolutely. Out in the Great Hall, Lord Grantham is instructing Alfred that he and the servants need to clear all of the evidence of the wedding away so that when Edith does come downstairs, she doesn't see it and, and be further distressed, which is actually the nicest thing he's done for anybody yeah. in three episodes. Yeah. Agreed. Back upstairs, uh, McGee, Mary, and Sybil come into Edith's room, and McGee asks if there's anything she can do to make it better, and she says no, and she says, look at them. You know, they're both married, Sybil pregnant, Mary probably pregnant. <laughs> and uh, McGee's like, yeah, perhaps it's best you should go. Yeah. And, and well, Edith tells them to get out yeah. first, yeah, very yeah, yeah. forcefully. Yeah. And she's probably been waiting her entire life <laughs> to tell them to get the fuck out of her space. <laughs> this is my one shot at yeah. this. Yeah. So they they head on out. And uh, Edith collapses again. And, and McGee kind of lies down on top of her and says that you are being tested and <laughs> I can't even get through it, and that it will make you stronger. And, and she says that she doesn't think that it's working for her. Yeah. And it is one of my favorite scenes because it is just such like a mom thing to do. Yeah. Where she just lays down with her and holds her. And, yeah. God, it is so devastating. Yeah. And I've seen... It's interesting doing the the shows a week later as we inadvertently are doing because I see a bit of commentary about them right. once I'm not worried about spoilers. And I've seen criticisms of McGee's acting in this season and specifically in this scene. Her and, acting in this season has been better than it has been every other season. Yeah, like so whoever that is out there, I don't even remember who it was, you're full of it. Yeah, screw you, person. We don't <laughs> know your name. Yeah. The servants are clearing out all the re- the wedding decorations. They put the carpet back down and try to get things back to normal. And, Lord, carry, and carry out the cake. Like, which, oh, that cake looks delicious. Yeah, somebody better end up eating that cake. I was so hungry <laughs> when I saw that cake. Lord Grantham wanders out on the lawn looking forlorn as if it was his wedding that had been called off rather <laughs> than his daughter's and he had caused it. <laughs> uh, so Matthew goes out and asks, you know, what they'll do now. And he just says, oh, you know, Edith will like get over it. And Matthew's like, really? I don't, mm, she was really upset. Uh, but he says, you know, it's time for us to, to face the facts and, and leave Downton and everyone will see my horrible mistake. Right. And Matthew, uh, tells him any good news about the Swire Gold. And Lord Grantham says, that's wonderful. I've just heard about the most amazing investment opportunity. <laughs> So Lord Grantham does that thing where he refuses to take the money, yeah, even yeah. though we all know inside he's like dancing a jig. <laughs> right. Again, dollar sign pupils. Yeah. Uh, but he insists that rather than letting Matthew give it to him, he'll let him invest it in Downton and they will share ownership of Downton, which I don't understand because if you don't have any money, right? doesn't he, isn't he then just buying you out? Yeah. That's how economics work. Well, like, call up Sir Richard Carlyle. He'll that, tell you. That seems like an arrangement that's doomed to failure. You can't have co-owners no, of anything. Not in this podcast board. Not of anything. <laughs> right. And I don't, I don't even mean that as anything against these two characters, even though I hate them. Just what, <laughs> <laughs> any two people. Yeah. Co-ownership is a, it's a sketchy idea. It generally goes south very quickly. Yeah. 
Yeah, but basically Lord Grantham then sort of good-naturedly blackmails him into agreeing because he <laughs> says that if he doesn't accept this offer, then he's going to go ahead and just sell Downton and it'll be Matthew's fault. Mm-hmm. So yeah, blackmail works as well upstairs as it does down. <laughs> Downstairs, Daisy said that she never thought she'd feel sorry for an earl's daughter. And uh, Anna reminds her that all God's creatures have their troubles. Not Isis. Nope. Isis has never had a trouble a day in her life. <laughs> Even when Thomas locked her up in that shed. Yeah. She, she got out. Yeah, she broke out. <laughs> it's the great escape. Daisy asks Anna if she thinks it's right for women to say what they think and to talk about romance. Anna says that things are changing and they'll have the vote soon, uh, and men will have to get used to women speaking their minds. But in her experience, most men would run a mile if a woman started courting them, or limp a mile, as the case may be. <laughs> I would limp 500 <laughs> miles, and I would limp 500 more. Yeah. Uh, and then Alfred comes in, and Daisy kind of casts a look at him. And Anna's all like, him? What, is he funny or something? (laughs) Back in the dining room at the most depressing dinner Downton has ever hosted, (laughs) Mary says that Edith is refusing food. And uh, Anna had sent up a a plate of sandwiches and she wouldn't eat them. And McGee reminds Carson that she doesn't want Edith seeing any of the wedding food. So if there's any leftover that evening, he's going to have Mrs. Hughes take it to Mr. Travis to give to the poor. Then the Dowager Countess says that if the poor don't want it, he can send it to her. It's a, just a weird line. It, well, like, it's and if a- you wanted some, why didn't you say some this afternoon and just be like, hey, give me some of that wedding food, yo. I'm old. <laughs> yeah. Nobody, anyway. Nobody would say no. Yeah. Matthew wonders how they can help Edith, and Isabel suggests that they should find her something to do. So I guess she's going to conscript poor Edith. <laughs> oh, God. If Edith goes to work at uh, the Whore Institute. Oh, boy. These recaps are going to be a mess because we're going to be like, Ethel, if Edith, Ethel, Edith, Ethel, it's, it's terrible. It's yeah. terrible when they share scenes. That is a, a fate we hope we avoid. Uh, down in the servants hall, Alfred is confused by the fancy food that they're being served. I kind of enjoy that he's infuriated that they have to eat this crap <laughs> that he would never eat yeah. because, you know, a wedding got canceled. Yeah. And, like, nobody seems happy about it. In the past, you know, at least Ethel would be happy when, like, you know, they made crepes and stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they they all express their pity for Edith. and But uh, Alfred, you know, at at least he does say that he doesn't feel sorry for her and that she can do better than that broken down old crock. (laughs) Which is nice. And, And Carson attempts to say that, you know, Sir Anthony should not be addressed so by a footman. And he doesn't deserve to be addressed so by a footman. And Mrs. Hughes says he deserves to be called that and worse. Mm-hmm. And Carson Carson says, well, maybe just this once. Yeah. Which is awesome. It's pretty great. Yeah. Then Alfred asks for some cheese. <laughs> right. That was odd. That's all. That, he uh, really doesn't want to eat that food. He, he actually only eats cheese. <laughs> <laughs> is that why he looks like that? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> He is pinky. (laughs) The next day, Anna comes into Edith's room and asks what she can get for her. And Edith says a different life. And it is so... I feel like we keep using the same, you know, adjectives here. But it is just devastatingly sad. Yeah. Because look, I mean, I've had a bad day where I woke up feeling like that. But none of it was getting jilted by the man that I'd set my cap for six years prior. In front of everybody I know. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, and just, you know, and after your sister has had this yeah. wedding and your other sister has eloped and everybody's fine with it now. Yeah. But Anna offers to bring her up some breakfast on a tray. But Edith says that she's a useful spinster. That's her purpose. And spinsters get up for breakfast. And it is so sad. Yes. Downstairs, Mrs. Hughes tells Carson that she is going to the village. And he asks if he can pick anything up for her. And she says, no, it's an errand she has to do herself. And then Mrs. Patmore comes in and is like, ready to go. I was like, it's not yourself, really. It is just a little funny to me. But... You know, we all know what it is, and and she heads out with Mrs. Patmore, and uh, Carson is worried. We also are very worried. Yeah. Because as concerned as we are for Edith, like, Edith's not going to die. Right. We are very sad. Yeah. But also really worried because we love Mrs. Hughes. We love her so much. We, yeah, this this whole storyline has also been quite harrowing for us. So we see outside Dr. Clarkson's hospital... Uh, Mrs. Hughes is just kind of standing there with Mrs. Patmore, and she says, well, she won't be cured by just standing outside. You see Carson in his uh, Carson cave putting together a tray of drinks, and he's just a wreck. Yeah, and looking then, at his watch. And, yeah. uh, Mrs. Hughes is there waiting with, with uh, Mrs. Patmore, and the nurse comes out, and Mrs. Hughes tells Mrs. Patmore, no, she's going to go in alone this time. She's going to face the music by herself. Well, she doesn't need Mrs. Patmore saying, oh, my God. <laughs> Or crying like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, then uh, we get a scene with O'Brien confronting Thomas. Because that's thematically appropriate. Yeah, uh, and she's just like, "Oh, I'm, I'm going to ruin your life. I don't know how, but I'll do it." And like, are is there? Can you not just could? They shot this scene and could have put it in any episode in this season. <laughs> they really could have. They just were like, let's just shoot uh, five or six scenes of O'Brien and Thomas threatening each other vaguely. And we'll, we'll pad we'll out whatever. sprinkle them in. Yeah. Our runtime's a little light here. <laughs> so then uh, Mrs. Patmore comes back and Carson runs up to her and asks if it's cancer. And she says, no, it's a benign something or other. I'm sure that's the technical term. Right. And uh, they continue to act like Mrs. Hughes doesn't know that Carson knows that she right. knows. It's at this point, I'm like, at least she's not dying. You yeah. Know? So then Mrs. Hughes comes up to Mrs. Patmore and says, you know, did you tell him? And Mrs. Patmore's like, oh, put him out of his misery, more like. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they're they're both happy and relieved. Yeah. And then Mrs. Hughes goes out in the hall and she hears Carson singing a song about a smoothing iron and he's yeah. laughing. Yeah. And it's, I... It's one of his cheerful Charlie's I bits. know. He's yeah. just delighted. And yeah. she just has a private little smile. Yeah. So she's, you know, Mrs. Hughes... It has had basically the opposite arc of Edith, which is finding out that, in fact, everyone does care about her. Yeah. And it matters a great deal to everyone that she's well and taken care of. Yeah. That was really, it was really nice. It was a nice note to end a very sad, a very unexpectedly sad episode on. Yeah. Well, and that's, again, in our first viewing, as we're coming up to the news about Mrs. Hughes, we're like, dear God, we cannot take it. Mm -mm. Not in this episode. We were like, you just can't. You just can't. (laughs) Yeah. And, And they didn't, so... We were quite relieved. So that brings us uh, to everybody's favorite, the Abbey Awards. That's right. For this episode. First up, we have Best Evasion. Okay. A lot of good candidates here. Yeah, that's true. Thomas seems to have evaded any sort of comeuppance so far. Thus far, At least yeah. from, like, the higher-ups. No, that's true. Uh, O'Brien and McGee have evaded, like, 
simply resolving their dispute. Yeah, that's true. Which would have been easy enough. Sir Anthony Strallen evaded marrying Edith, he which in the past the hell out we would have said would have been a good thing, but not anymore. Yeah, not this time. No. Uh, Lord Grantham evaded responsibility for having wrecked their wedding. Yeah. Because the Dowager Countess just stepped up for it. That's true. That's true. Edith evaded breakfast <laughs> in bed. Yeah. Laura Linney evaded this entire episode. That's there was right. no Linney. By the way, everybody, what the heck? She didn't do anything. I mean, it was her voice just saying, this is Masterpiece Classic and whatnot. And we're like, yeah, we know. Yeah. That's why it says so on our DVR. Mm-hmm. We want your insipid insights <laughs> into this era. Who are we supposed to make fun of now? Yeah. Well, and I mean, she should... Either last week or this should have been some said something about like, oh, it's the 20s. As the calendar changes, so do the days of our lives. Right? Or, you know, whatever. Just something. Yeah. There's also Mechel avoided the wedding completely. That's true. For better or for worse. And it's best evasion. So yeah. So we're going to say it was for better. Yeah. We're going to give it to Mechel. No. All right. Well done. Bit out of left field there for somebody not in the episode. I but, know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, her lack of presence was felt. It was, very much so. Uh, so then we've got best overbite. Well, we uh, we thought about giving it to one person. Right. But then that person did something so egregiously horrible that we had to invent <laughs> an entire new category. Uh, but, you know, I'm going to go with Isabel yeah. on this one. She was very condescending to those prostitutes. Yeah. And also, why begrudge them some food? She, they uh, just want to eat. I, they, they do. I look. I've, I've never worked at the horror institute. I don't know what their policies are like. Okay. Next up is uh, Gibson Girl mm-hmm. for the best dressed person, and we already gave it to her once this season. But we got to give it to Edith we again. We do have to give that it to wedding Edith again. dress was the best. Yeah, it really. I was. hope she hasn't burned it. <laughs> yeah, because maybe she'll meet somebody else. Yeah. I mean, I guess I wouldn't want to wear my same wedding dress from the wedding where I got jilted. Yeah. But um, she also, the the sort of like red top and skirt she had on at the very beginning was a yeah. great color on her. Yeah. They just really seem like they figured out what her deal is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's not just because we wanted to give her an award. It's because she really looked great. She did really look great. Yes. Then we have the Fashion Backwards Award for Backwards Fashion, a.k.a. The backy. Yes. That's going to the oh. prostitutes from Central Casting. Uh, <laughs> Isabel's trying to teach them how to make them be- make better clothes, and they are simply just not taking the hint. Yeah. Yeah. So prostitutes, uh, let's step it up a notch. Yeah. Start Come on. charging a little extra, putting a little elbow grease. May- maybe you can work your way up to call girl. Yeah. That would be fantastic. Yeah. It seems like a better deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and next we have our brand new category, Worst Decision. Tom, tell them who made the worst decision today. That would be Sir Anthony Strallen. Hands down. And I, in fact, would like to propose that going forward, we name this the Anthony Strallen Worst Decision Award. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. In memorial of the worst decision ever. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. So let it be written. So let it be done. <laughs> All right. And finally, that brings us to everybody's favorite award, the Maggie Smith Scale of Maggie Smiths. It pains us, cousins. It does. It pains us grievously. Mm -hmm. If she were not Maggie Smith, the most ethereal and fascinating being that has ever trod this earth, we would consider giving her an even lower score. However, we all know that this is not possible. Were we to try, the gods would strike us dead. (laughs) That's right. 
But Maggie Smith only gets a one in this episode. That is Again, true. the onus is primarily on Julian Fellows for giving her all these lines that don't make any damn sense. Yeah. Giving her this yeah. irrational and hatred of Anthony Strallen. Yeah. Like, it did was he just... jump her at one point? Like, what is this? <laughs> That's an interesting theory. Um, no, it was just awful. I mean, you know what? She had one or two good lines in the episode, so at least there was that. Yeah. But just one. Wolf. One Maggie Smith, and she's lucky for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm anxious and mm-hmm. excited to see what's going to happen in the next episode. As I do still I. feel like we're in full Downton swing here. Agreed, agreed. But man, just so sad, devastating, really sad. So instead of just saying that for the next ten minutes over and over <laughs> again, I think that's a wrap for us today. That's right. So until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs. downstairs. Luncheon out. <laughs> <laughs>